Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to another wonderful, momentous, exciting, monumental episode of the Jalo Chow Chow. This is episode 91, where we are going to talk about Luigi Bazzoni's 1965 proto-Jalo, The Possessed. I'm your host, Chris, and I have a little website called thejalloscore.com. And with me today, as always, uh, all the way from the motherland of Italian giallo cinema, Italy, is our good friend Al. Ciao, sir. How are you today? Ciao, ciao. I'm great. How are you, Chris? I'm doing excellent. I wanted to continue our little school of Berlitz language lessons by saying the other name for this film is La Donna del Lago, which I think is pretty easy to pronounce. Did I get that right? That's perfect. Yeah. All right. Uh, and La Donna del Lago is Italian for the Lady of the Lake, which I think we may have discussed this in a previous episode, but there is a book which the film is based on, and I don't think it's called the Lady, or it is called the Lady of the Lake. But there's mm -hmm. also a Rossini opera called The Lady of the Lake or La Donna del Lago that I am not familiar with at all. So, Right. I came across that in the research, too. And okay. I don't think they're necessarily related. And technically, La Donna del Lago is the woman of the lake. Oh, okay. So lady would be signora, like Mrs. such and such, right? Like Signor Signore. Right, okay. Uh, but I could see why they kind of fancied up a little bit. Because you get the alliterative in English. The Lady of the Lake. Which sounds a little smoother yes. than the Woman of the Lake. Good point, good point. Um, and, you know, the, the, one of the problems with 
it being called La Dona del Lago is that if you're doing research or if you're trying to look up information about the film, you are constantly having to filter out results related to the opera, uh, especially mm -hmm. on YouTube. So for those of you who haven't seen the film, because there is a major, or I guess what you would call a major studio, Arrow, is that a major studio? They've released the film on Blu-ray, and I think they're trying to keep um, the film out of bootleg status on YouTube. So it's very hard to find a copy on the internet without paying for it. Just right. uh, a heads up for those of you who haven't watched the film yet. Now, uh, one of the things I did want to mention really quickly, quickly this, I believe, is, Al, your 11th show in a row uh, on the podcast. Is that correct? That's correct. Big number 11. Big number 11. And I just wanted to take a moment to extend a, a sincerest gratitude towards Al because um, we spent all of 2021 talking about Proto Jalo and... Matt was with us for two out of the 10 episodes, I believe. And prior to that, you know, Matt was doing some of the episodes with me. And um, if it wasn't for Al, who reached out and said, hey, I'd be really jazzed if you uh, were be interested in having me come on the podcast. I don't think that we would be recording episode 91 right now because um, Matt is just, you know, he's got other things going on. He's just not able to do the podcast. And I don't know that I would have filled that role easily with anybody else. Uh, I could have tried to reach out to a few of the folks on the various uh, Facebook groups that we belong to to see if anybody was interested in doing it. But Al was uh, the perfect fit, and I didn't have, even have to ask him to volunteer. He kind of volunteered himself. So, so, so thank you, sir. And I appreciate you being here doing this with us, uh, with me. And uh, keeping this uh, train rolling down the road. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you had put out a, like, I guess a, a mini-sode where maybe jokingly you asked if anybody was interested in co-hosting an episode with you. So ah, okay. it wasn't like I just decided I'm going to see if I can get on there. You know, you kind of asked and I thought about it and I discussed it with you know, my son and my wife. And eventually I got the nerve to send you the, the message <laughs> and you responded. And I, I was, no, I was very excited. And you were starstruck, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh my God, I'm in, I'm in. And, uh, I remember walking into the kitchen with this grin on my face and they're looking at me like, what the hell are you up to now? <laughs> And I said, I'm going to be on Chow, Chow. <laughs> and they were like, oh, my God, really? And uh, oh wow! That's so we did said. that first episode. And every time we've done one since then, I'm, I'm still giddy that I'm able to be a part of it. So oh, thank you. Cool. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I went through the same thing when Matt and Eric contacted me about the website. And then, you know, the first time they recorded a podcast, I think it was for Black Belly the Tarantula. I sent in a, a little sound blurb because I wasn't going to mm -hmm. be able to record with them 
but they invited me, but I wasn't able to record with them. So I sent in a little sound blurb and I must have rehearsed and practiced that sound blurb for hours. And I sent it in and they played it on the show and it said something about how I didn't think <laughs> it was, it was in my, my early, my proto, uh, no, my proto chow chow day. Um, when I didn't really know that much about Jalo films, or at least I didn't know as much as I thought I did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I said, well, you know, I don't really think black belly tarantula is, uh, a, can be considered a Jalo. It's more of a police procedural and, after Matt played that little sound clip, he's like, that was a really good sound clip. And now I'm going to tell you exactly why I don't agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, the episode after that, um, I think was the episode that I w- w- was on it live. And we talked about the website. And then we went and talked about uh, Case of the Bloody Iris. So... Um, yeah, and I felt the same way, you know, and, and now it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not old hat for you, but it's old hat for me. And, and it, it turns out that it's, um, you don't really need to be as starstruck as you think you are. You know, I, I was starstruck with Matt and Eric and they're just, you know, two dudes talking about movies and it's same with us. So, um, yeah, but anyway, <laughs> Yeah. So that's great. I mean, we're going to continue on. And like I said, whenever Matt has free time, I'm hoping he can come back. Uh, we're gearing up for episode 100, trying to get um, Eric to participate as well. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is even though we have, I don't know, eight more episodes that we need to record before the hundredth, um, and, and, and it's going to be like, I don't know, November, maybe before we get to that point, I'm still worried <laughs> that Matt is not going to be able <laughs> to be part of the, <laughs> of the recording. Cause like, mm. I just can't seem to get him to, uh, commit to anything because of his schedule. So I figured that like, I don't know, nine or 10 months in advance is enough notice. It's kind of like a save the date for somebody's wedding, you know? Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, you know, we'll get them on. What I wanted to do, um, and I know we've got a lot to cover still, but I wanted to kind of revive the segment that Matt used to do on the Chow Chow podcast, where we would take the last 10 films that we covered on the podcast and rank them in order of our favorites. Now, um, the way Matt used to do it, honestly, there, it's a, there was a black box there. He had some sort of crazy math formula where myself and Eric would send him our rankings, he would add his own rankings and come up with one ranking that represented, you know, an average of, or some sort of a, of a mean related to all three of us. Now, I don't know how he did it. And when you only have two people, it's probably even harder to do that. Um, because like, if my number one is your number 10, then it's a five and a half. So, 
you know, and right. then all of them, all of them are five and a half. So I think, uh, it, I think maybe the best thing to do is to have you go through yours. I'll let you take the, the, the first crack at it and I'll go through mine and let's, you know, I'm going to try not to, um, go off into tangents for too long about the films and, uh, Let's try to see how many of them we agree on. And then, guys, what we're going to do is uh, I just did a little research and Facebook will allow a poll of up to 10 options. So I'm going to be able to put the list of all the films we covered over the last 10 episodes on the group. And I want uh, everybody to go to the Facebook group and vote on which ones, which one is your favorite of the 10. Um Cause it's not going to be, it's not going to be your, it's not going to be individual Facebook member group members list of 10. It's going to be everybody click the one they like the most. And maybe we'll, you know, there may be some that don't get any votes at all, but we'll see, you know, what everybody liked the most out of the ones we covered. So Al, why don't you take it away? Um, and I'm not even going to go over the list cause you have it. And as you announce them, everybody who's listening will remember which ones we did and, and which ones they like. Okay, so do you want me to go through all ten of them at once, or yeah, do you I want mean, to alternate uh, back and forth? No, I think uh, I think you should go through all of your ten at once. I think we'll try it that way and see what happens. Okay, so starting at number ten, which means the least yeah, favorite. I think that would be more um, more dramatic. Yeah, more dramatic. <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right, for number ten. I had, and this kind of surprised me because there's one film in particular that I seem to relish crapping all over more than <laughs> some of the others, <laughs> but I surprised myself and my number 10 is a hyena in the safe. Okay. And the, the main sticking point for me with that film was it, the plot itself did not seem to make any sense. Uh, it was very super 60s in style, in music, and I did not care about any of the the characters. And I thought they kind of leaned a little too heavily on the setting that they had, but the story was not interesting enough to match it. So uh, that film just kind of confused me and... Uh, slightly pissed me off. So I put that at number 10. <laughs> okay. Uh, my number nine is the one I was referring to. And if right. people have been paying attention and taking notes like they should, <laughs> uh, it, I'd have to go with dark glasses for number okay. nine. That's what I thought. Uh, like I said in our mini-sode, relative mini-sode about it, Everything was cool about this film from a technical standpoint, but the the plot was just ridiculous and the dialogue was laughable. And the fact that it was made by the person it was made by was overall depressing. So that's my number okay. nine. Okay. My number eight is Double Face. All right. Which... On its own is an okay film, but there were other ones above it that I just liked a little more. And I noticed that 
Every few years, I hit a spot where I think I'm interested in Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and I'll watch one of his movies and realize I'm kind of not. You're not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the story was okay. It had a interesting kind of twist at the end. Uh, but just it was... For this group of 10, I would put that as kind of average. And unfortunately, that puts it at number eight. Okay. My number seven is Deadly Inheritance. I like that one a little bit more. It featured a lot of Femi Benusi, and she's one of my maybe top three Jalo ladies. Uh, the story was interesting. The setting was a little more interesting. It wasn't urban. It wasn't centered around a modeling agency or anything uh, more typical for Jolly. Right, right. Uh, the scenes where the guy's swimming away from the police and they're looking for him in the boat was more entertaining than it should have been, probably. <laughs> and it had an interesting little twist towards the end that I didn't really see coming. Uh, so that was cool. My number six is the one that we did last, uh, The Insatiables, or Carnal Circuit, depending okay. on the one you're going for. My, I liked a lot about that movie, but the, the, the okay, the main character played by Robert Hoffman seemed kind of boring and he was trying to fit himself into being a detective, which I guess journalists try to or sometimes end up assuming that role in the right. course of doing their jobs. But he was doing it on behalf of his friend. Uh, I can't even remember his name. The, the oh. model guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Julio. Right. Julio yeah. Lamberti, right? And and the guy was just an asshole. And at the same time, I couldn't understand why anybody gives a shit who killed him and who killed him. Everybody wanted to kill him. I would have killed him if I knew yeah. him. Right. And if somebody else had killed him, I wouldn't waste my time trying to uncover the truth. Who cares? He's gone. Move on. <laughs> my number five was Intera Bang. Okay. Uh, I can't say I like the plot. I like the kind of triple, quadruple twist endings. Kind of like the last 10 minutes is yep. where all of the payoff for the film is. But it is very watchable. And I like the, the hanging out on the beach because geographically it reminds me of the beaches that I grew up on when I was younger. Hmm, okay. And just watching these people hanging out uh, on a boat and in the water and on the sand. And yeah, I could watch that. Uh, probably with the volume turned off and some music playing or something. Yeah. I think but, that's what we said about it. Yeah. 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 Okay. My number four would be Murder by Music. All right. Which I thought was one of the more interesting as far as like a Jalo goes. Because the killer turned out to be a musical composition. <laughs> and I certainly did not see that coming. 
Wait, I a mean, musical composition combined with ibogaine or ibogane, the hallucinogenic drug. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't just listen to Pink Floyd. You have to drop the acid, too. Right, right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, don't forget about the drugs. Uh <laughs> That was refreshing, and it, it kind of reminded me of the satanic panic in the 80s when everybody was freaking out about this evil music causing kids to do bad things. And uh, I think I expected that the music would have had to do something with the, the hippie scene where they're all dancing and, you know, bopping around to this groovy hip style of music, but it actually turned out to be something classical. Right. That right. Uh, would have been respectable among uh, certain circles. Yes. Uh, I thought that was cool. That was cool. I agree. My number three would be Le Diabolique. And that is a classic film, which for me is basically French Hitchcock. Uh, it had twists in it that I didn't exactly see coming and it was uh the suspense build-ups were very good uh but I think I just watched a whole lot of Hitchcock over the years and watching something that reminds me of Hitchcock I guess doesn't have the same impact I probably would have liked this yeah. film a lot more if I'd seen it a lot younger than I am. Yeah. Okay. But uh, it's it's definitely a great film. I, I can't say anything bad about it, except eh, more of what I've already seen. My number two is A Black Veil for Lisa. Uh, what I liked about this was that the protagonist is a policeman and... He's in a situation where he's married this younger trophy wife and finds out that because of the age discrepancy or, I don't know, maybe just background, they're not quite on the same level and he can't really keep up with her, if you know what I mean. Right. And there are different motivations behind why people are where they are and what they're doing. And... Instead of uh, just trying to solve a mystery, he decides to lean into it and try to have her killed. I thought that was interesting. I mean, not commendable, but <laughs> I thought it was an interesting twist for these types of films. Yep. And uh, it was one that I'd, I'd seen pictures of like the posters and I'd seen it on lists and I'd never thought to watch it, but I did. And I was pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. My number one uh, just so happens to be the very first one that I participated in this podcast with. And yeah. that is naked. You die. All right. And I think I haven't listened to it back in a while, but I think on that episode I had, kind of giving it a lukewarm reception like yeah it was okay i don't know if i'll watch it again it was kind of but the more i think about it 
I think I had a lot more fun watching that film than I have some of these other ones. Not that the other ones aren't fun, but right. it's the type of film that once you know what's going on and you watch it again, other things start popping up that you might have missed or overlooked or just not thought twice about the first time. So it rewards repeated viewings, and I always appreciate that. And some of the characters that maybe the first time annoyed me, I found a little more charming and yeah. amusing. And that's it. Yeah. Okay. And you're not jaded in any way because that was the very first episode you were on, the Chow Chow, right? Well, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It, that might have something to do with it. It may be subconsciously um, affecting your decision. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I mean, if I had to look and say, okay, out of these 10, which one do you want to watch right now? I would probably right. pick Naked You Die. Okay. So. I got gotcha. you. All right. Well, very, very well-rounded and um, efficient list. And I found um, many of your uh, observations to be very interesting and will be very fun to uh, compare against mine, which are about to come right now. So yes, I have dark glasses as my last and least favorite. And the problem that I have with putting dark glasses at number 10 is that it really, you and I both agree that the film is technically well done well shot. The gore effects are done well. And all of that is kind of something that you should expect from a film made in 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't say that for any of the other ones on this list. You can say that, you know, when you watch any of the other ones on this list, you have an expectation that's based on the year it was made. And what's funny is that it's, it's your ninth pick and it's my 10th pick and all these other ones we think are better. Um, so it's, 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 it's something to be said that, you know, the, the first, the first argument is, well, you know, the heyday of these films was sixties and seventies and now their time has passed. But the, um, the opposite argument to that is, uh, you could make a very good giallo film if you did it right with today's modern technology and um, a more kind of, you know, the, the, the modern audience is way more critical of bad writing. And so if you write something knowing that you're, uh, or if you make a movie knowing that you're creating a film for a more critical audience um, and you do a good job that it could really rise above any of the other Jalo films from the past, but it doesn't seem like this has happened with dark glasses. And it's almost kind of like, I didn't feel like I wanted to include it in this list. Cause it's, it's really such an anomaly compared to all the other ones. But yes, it, if, if you asked me to rank them from most favorite to least favorite, I think dark glasses is least favorite. Um, although, you know, one of the things I want to say about my top 10 ranking is that, I came up with the list, you know, a few minutes before we did this recording. I didn't 
maintain a running list throughout the last year. And some of these we haven't watched in a while. So uh, I may, you know, if you asked me to, to watch all 10 of these again and come up with a new list, I may re-rank them. So anyway, disclaimers away. Uh, for all the reasons why you said Dark Glasses is your number nine, it's my number 10. Double Face was my number nine, which was your number eight. Um, and it was my second least favorite simply because it wasn't memorable. I know Klaus Kinski was in it. I know that there was some gothic aspects to it. I think it kind of sort of reminded me of Hatchet for a Honeymoon in some ways. Um, and I know that some of the women in the film were fun to look at, but that's all I remember. Um, the next one on my list, which will be surprising for you is Les Diabolique. And that is primarily because it was a chore for me to sit through it. Not because it was a bad film, but because I just don't, and, and this, this lends itself to the, the, the discussion that we're going to have about the possessed later on in the podcast. Uh, because both of these films kind of have that same kind of vibe of very slow burn, slow moving, black and white, um, and also in a foreign language. So I'm reading subtitles as well as, you know, having to stick with it. Um, I completely respect uh, how influential Lady Diabolique is on, you know, just the thriller mystery genre and the twist ending and the whole thing. Um, but it's just not something that I would go back and watch again, uh, anytime soon. Um, after that we have in Terabang is number seven for me, which, uh, you know, it's funny because when you were talking about in Terabang and mentioned the four layer twist ending, I had totally even forgotten that in Terabang had a four layer <laughs> twist ending. The only thing I remember about in Terabang was the three different girls and their bikinis. And exactly. That's why I remembered it. That's why I put it at number seven, because it, it is definitely a watchable film just for that particular sake. Yeah. And that's all you need. Right now. Uh, the next one up is carnal circuit. We both had that at number six for the same reasons. Probably uh, it was an interesting film to watch. It was fast paced enough so that I wasn't bored watching it or it wasn't a chore or tedious, but there wasn't anything really truly remarkable about remarkable about the film. Number five, I have a hyena in a safe. And I have to say that it may be uh, high on the list simply because when we talked about it, it was the three of us and Matt was really jazzed about it. And, you know, I, Matt has a very kind of influential kind of personality. And when he wants to convince you that you should like something, um, you tep you have a tendency to like it more than you really think you do. Um, and sometimes he's convinced me that films are bad when I thought they were good. And sometimes he's convinced me that films are good when I thought they were bad. For example, huh. strip nude for your killer and eyeball. But um, he's also tried to convince me that Sister of Ursula is a good film and I hated it. So, uh, but I liked Hyena in a, in a Safe simply because it was kooky and weird and silly and probably for the reasons that you didn't like it were the reasons I did like it. So okay. uh, Deadly Inheritance I have at number four 
And I have that one high on the list simply because I think it's rewatchable. Uh, I think it's more classic than any of the other, uh, than most of the other Jalo films we did this uh, past 10. And, you know, it's like Killers on the Loose, try to figure out who it is, mystery at the end. Um, I enjoyed that one very much. Number three, I have Black Veil for Lisa, which grew on me. Um, if you had asked me to rank it after the second time I watched it, it would be closer to six or seven, but it's up at three because of how much we got out of it when we talked about it on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So good for us. Uh, number two, Murder by Music. I, I'm still kind of on the fence about two and three. Black Veil may go up to two and Murder by Music could come down to three. Um, but for the same reasons why you liked Murder by Music, it was original. It was different. Um, I like the characters. I like the freakiness about it. I like the whole counterculture versus the establishment and the hippies versus the thugs versus the, the, you know, the, um, the civil servants and, you know, just the whole idea mm -hmm. of the music being the killer. And, um, also because I'm really hoping that it gets re-released in a copy that's watchable visually, uh, one day. And then you and I agree on number one, which is naked. You die. It is the, it, it's, I didn't realize it when I was watching it just like you, but it is probably one of the most influential proto jolly that we've looked at. And not because it's got a lot of gratuitous murder scenes, because it certainly doesn't. And it doesn't have gratuitous mm -hmm. nude scenes, but there's something about the way that the film was put together it's got a lightheartedness to it that um, is kind of a, a kind of foreshadows the way a lot of the Jalo films uh, in the classic period would, would be handled. And, you know, like just the ones we like the most out of the classic period are, are usually the ones that are a little bit trashy, like um, Case of the Bloody Iris and so on. Um, and Naked You Die is kind of like that. I like the characters, I like the twist. Um, the whole gender bending thing and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, it's weird that I'm saying that I put this one at number one for a film that doesn't have an English language soundtrack because that's usually, or, you know, two years ago, that was a big barrier for me. I was only watching Jalo films that had English soundtracks and now that doesn't put me off anymore. So, huh, cool. So good list. And like I said, guys, I'm going to put this list on the Facebook group. Uh, I will cross post it over to Jalloholics. That's a page I've been trying to get some traction on. There's a lot more people over there and I've been cross posting there just to get some more, you know, eyes on what we're up to, but head over to the page. By the time this episode comes out, it will be up on the group page and vote for your favorite of the last 10. And here's to the next 10, starting with the movie that's coming up next. Mm -hmm. 
So the film we're going to cover today is a film called The Possessed from 1965. This is our deep dive. I'm going to take uh, Troy Howarth's book called So Deadly, So Perverse, volume one, which is from 63 to 73. And I'm going to read the synopsis, just the synopsis of this film that he wrote in his book. Disaffected writer Bernard returns to the small Italian village he often uses as a hideaway. He has one goal in mind to reconnect with beautiful Tilda, with whom he has become obsessed. He is crestfallen when Enrico, who runs the local hotel, informs him that Tilda died the previous year of an apparent suicide. The local photographer, however, does not believe it was a suicide and sets Bernard on a search that may lead to the girl's murderer. Dot, dot, dot. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, that is Troy Howarth's book, So Deadly, So Perverse. He obviously has a lot more to say about the film, but I will not add those because there are spoilers and we will get to those eventually. Once again, for those of you who haven't watched this film yet, it's recommended that you do before we go any further, there will be a lot of spoilers. And before we get into the film's um, plot and uh, scene by scene uh, commentary, Al is going to give us some information about the film and its production. Take it away, Al. Okay, uh, this film was directed by two, well, there are two credited directors, and I think most of the sources I checked with agree that one was more of a director and one was uh, more of a producer, but they both get co-directing credit. Uh, the first one is Luigi Bazzoni. He has 14 directing credits between 63 and 95. This was his first full-length film. Other films that he's done that we've probably heard of, or you've definitely heard of if you follow this podcast, The Fifth Chord and Footprints on the Moon. Uh, he also did other types of films like spaghetti westerns and dramas and the, uh, the usually expected genres. The other uh, director was Franco Rossellini. He was mostly a producer, but he did have 14 uh, production credits, including Django and Caligula and Fellini's City of Women. Uh, Franco Rosalini's father, Renzo Rosalini, is the composer of the score for this film. 
And Renzo Losarini, the composer, has 102 composing credits between 1936 and 1997. And just for trivia's sake, Renzo Rossellini is the brother of the Italian director Roberto Rossellini, which I'll circle back to in a few minutes. Uh, this film was written by the two co-directors, in addition to Giulio Questi, who has 17 writing credits between 52 and 2011. Uh, the only writing credit that he had that I recognized was one of the Django sequels. And the fourth writer credited to this is Ernesto Gastaldi who is no stranger to Jalo fans. If there's a Jalo film that's in your uh, top five Jalo uh, of all time, he's probably written like two or three of them. <laughs> right. His writing credits range from 1960 to 1998. Uh, the cinematographer, interestingly enough, was a woman... Uh, her name is Leonida Barboni. She has 63 cinematography credits between 42 and 72. Uh, nothing really that I'd heard of before except one film called Divorce Italian Style that came out in 1961. It starred Marcello Mastroianni and... One of the smaller parts was played by Stefania Sandrelli, who played the detective's wife in Black Belly of the Tarantula. I think that's the only Jalo tie that she has. Um, the location for this film. This is where I got really excited. <laughs> this film was shot in a town called Alege. And that is in the region of Belluno. Now, that's in the province of Belluno, in the region of Veneto. And I looked on the map, and the town of Alege is 38 miles from where I live and where I'm sitting right now. Wow. Uh, I haven't been there, but maybe this summer. This town has a kind of tragic history. Um, in 1771, part of a mountain called Monte Piz, P-I-Z, collapsed, and this landslide blocked a river that flowed through the valley. Three villages were immediately swept away or buried, and others were submerged in the next few days. A second landslide occurred later that year, and part of the town of Alege that we see in this film were also destroyed. That ties in with a line that somebody, well, something that comes up in the film that uh, we'll get to about a submerged village. Uh, the writers, when they wrote this, they were basing it on a novel by Giovanni Comiso that novel came out in 1962, and it was itself based on true crime stories. 
between 1933 and 1946, there was a series of five murders in the town of Alege, including one that happened in a hotel. So, keeping all that in mind as we watch the film, we'll add an extra little chill factor for you. Uh, one of the sources I found in Italian says of this film that because of its use of black and white and its internal focus on the protagonist, this is considered the most successful example of Italian noir, mm. which is, uh, I guess, a precursor to Giallo in some ways. But yeah. if you're familiar with film noir, this film <clears throat> is... Uh, You'll see a lot to like in this. Okay, moving on to the cast. Uh, our main protagonist, Bernard, is played by Peter Baldwin, who's an American. Uh, between 1952 and 1972, he racked up 31 acting credits, including a 1970 Jalo called The Weekend Murders. Uh, after 72, it looks like he moved on to directing television programs. He has 111 directing credits, including things like Sanford and Son, Small Wonder, and The Wonder Years. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm just jumping in for a second because when you said The Weekend Murders, I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, and uh, now I remember him from The Weekend Murders, but once you said Small Wonder, I had to laugh because I used to watch that show. It was awful. It was a terrible, terrible, terrible. <laughs> Is that terrible the one with the little robot girl? Yes. Okay. Was, yep. Yeah. It was the robot girl. You got it. I can sing the entire theme song for you right now, and I won't do it. Okay. Well, if you ever bump into Peter Baldwin in an airport. <laughs> You can impress I'll sing him, it for him. Maybe. I'll sing it for him. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the character of Tilde, who we see relatively little of, but she's kind of the engine that sets this whole story in motion, is played by Virna Lisi, who I guess could be, if she hasn't already been, described as an Italian Marilyn Monroe. Between 53 and 2015, she had 118 acting credits. She acted her ass off. Wow. But the only film of hers that I'd actually seen was a 1972 film called Bluebeard with Richard Burton. Uh, and if you're interested in easy-to-look-at women, I would definitely suggest checking this film out because it includes Joey Heatherton, Raquel Welch, Mighty Lou Tolo, who we saw in Murder by Music, uh, Karen Schubert, and Sybil Danning. Mm. So it's uh, worth checking out. It's kind of batshit crazy. And, but. and she reminds hmm. me of Sharon Stone a lot. Huh. In, uh, in Bluebeard, she plays a singer. I don't remember if she uh, crossed her legs or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> No, it looks like she has curly hair in that film, right? Or at least a curly hair I, wig. I mean, I'm, I'm just I don't remember. It, it's been so. a while since I've seen it. Yeah. But yeah, look up some of her photos on on Google Images, everybody, and tell me that some of them, like the ones where she's younger 
and her hair is straight. Um, I'm picking out a couple that I'm looking at right now. It's It's got that, she's got that uh, Sharon Stone in Casino look. But anyway. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm seeing that now. Okay. Yeah, and as far as I know, she's still around. So, uh, most of the people in this film are long gone. But there are a couple. I think Peter Baldwin and Fernalisi are the two. Okay, the hotel owner uh, is Enrico. He is played by Salvo Randone. He's an Italian. He has 60 acting credits between 43 and 77, including My Dear Killer and Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. His daughter, Irma is played by Valentina Cortese, an Italian. She has 107 acting credits, including uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much or right. The Evil Eye. So she was there at the very beginning of the whole Jalo thing. She was also in Iguana with the Tongue of Fire. And I discovered earlier this afternoon that she was also in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen by Terry Gilliam. Uh, I thought she looked kind of familiar when I saw this, and hmm. I think that's where I recognized her from. Uh, her brother is Philippe Leroy. He is French, I believe. He has 190 acting credits from 1960 to 2018. He was in Argento's Mother of Tears in 2007, and... He was in a film that I like a lot called Cross Current, which came out in 71. Uh, his new bride in this film is named Adriana. She is played by Pia Lindstrom, who is Swedish. She is the daughter of Ingrid Bergman. Hmm. Ingrid Bergman's second husband was Roberto Rossellini. Roberto Rossellini was the uncle of Franco Rossellini, one of the directors of this film. Yes. So basically, the director hired his step-cousin to play in this, hmm. and she only had four acting credits. Three of them were in the 60s, and then one in the 90s. So uh, apparently acting wasn't her uh, <laughs> huge career. Yeah. Uh, the other person I thought was worth mentioning was Francesco. He plays a person who runs a little photo shop there in the touristy town of Allegri. He is played by Pier Giovanni Anchisi. He's Italian. He has 34 acting credits, and this was his very first film. But he went on later for Jalo Vance to be in Autopsy with Mimsy Farmer. And that is all the production information I have. I'm trying to I'm trying to close my eyes and remember where what he was doing in um, Autopsy, but um, I haven't seen that movie in so long. So, um, okay. And uh, again, we just want to say that this film was released in 1965, and it had a name change in 
the U.S. when it was released. I'm trying to find it now. I I watched. So it was released in on TV in the United States under the title "Love, Hate, and Dishonor." Mm-hmm. And um, my copy. So I have a really interesting observation about this film before we get into the details, which is. I originally watched the film at least once, if not twice, in order to write an article for it for the jalloscore.com, plug, plug, um, in Italian. And I enjoyed the film very, very much. And I realized how visual it was and how important it was to be watching the imagery of this film because of how well done it was and how much the visual image contributed to the overall theme of the movie. And I said, it would be great to watch this without having to read subtitles. And then I realized that Arrow Video released it on Blu-ray with an English soundtrack. Now, um, I don't know why the copy that I got off the internet didn't have dual audio, but it didn't. Um, so I managed to find a used copy of the Blu-ray on Amazon for like five bucks. And I think at one point it was being used in a library and then was sold, uh, you know, to some sort of, you know, probably bought by some, you know, uh, side hustle person who, you know, put them on Amazon to resell. So when I watched it last night, I watched it in English. And today when I went through it for the fourth time, uh, to do the scene by scene, I watched it in Italian again. Now, two things that I will bring to the immediate attention of our discussion. Number one is that if you can get a hold of the Blu-ray, it's worth buying because it's gorgeous. And and it really, the visuals, you know, there's been a lot of discussion on this podcast, especially with Matt, about how some of these films are ruined by the fact that they look too good and they weren't meant to look this good. Uh, because they, you know, they, they reveal some of the bad special effects. But this film, um, it almost pops off the screen. It feels like it's in 3D when I watch it on the Blu-ray. And um, so that's important, uh, an important thing to, to note. Uh, the version that you, that you can watch, I know that if you can find like a download copy or like a bootleg copy of it on the internet, it may be a little bit less when it comes to fidelity, uh, less quality. But if you were to pay for it, I think you can, you know, like Arrow has this thing now where you don't have to buy their Blu-rays. You can just rent them. And Arrow, I guess, has a streaming service where you can watch their their films over the internet. I would assume that you'll get one that's in comparable, you know, that is in, in comparable quality to the Blu-ray. Probably not 100% though. Um, so if you like this film, if you're interested in it, if you think you might watch it more than once or twice, definitely get the Blu-ray. I bought it not because I liked it so much. I, w- I wanted to have a Blu-ray of it, but because I just could not find any version that I could bootleg off the internet that had the English language soundtrack. And I really wanted to watch it without being distracted by the subtitles. So that's, that's my, my, my spiel there. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is that I noticed a lot of differences between the English language soundtrack and the subtitles when watching the Italian version. 
Um, and certain things, like I don't know, Al, if you've ever seen a comparison between the ending of Evil Eye versus the ending of A Girl Who Knew Too Much, but it's completely different, the endings. Hmm. It wasn't as dramatic with this between the English and the Italian, but there are a few things that in the English version, there are some, you know, some, some of the mystery is revealed a little bit differently. And some of the information is, is kind of the revelations are, are different or, or just like the topics and I'll, and I have a couple of footnotes in the, in the, uh, in the scene by scene where I noticed the difference, but there's probably a lot more that I didn't notice because I didn't do them side by side. So, uh, yeah, I only watched the Italian version with the English subtitles and the version I got had dual audio. So I could have listened to it in English or Italian, but I decided to, to watch the Italian version. And it came with four different sets of English subtitles. And I assume maybe the fourth set was subtitles for a commentary track, which I didn't get around to. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I, would I did recommend... notice. No, go ahead. Uh-huh. Sorry. Well, I did notice watching it in Italian with the first two sets of English subtitles. I thought I had somehow had screwed up and gotten the subtitles to a totally different film because what I'm hearing said in Italian <laughs> is nowhere near what the guy is, is saying in the subtitles. I was like, what the fuck? It's, it's not even... I mean, a lot of times there are little idioms or nuances where something is worded differently, but the, the major point is still communicated. Right. This was like, I'm reading an entire different conversation than what I'm hearing. And it wasn't until I got to the third set of subtitles that I found subtitles that actually fit what was being said in Italian. Doing a little bit of the research, I did come across sources that said basically that the English dub was a little more straightforward and easy to figure out or easier to understand as far as the plot and the mystery. Mm -hmm. Those same sources also said that the Italian or uh, European version left things a little more ambiguous and kind of expected the audience to enjoy digging and trying to piece it together. More than having things spelled out for them. Unfortunately, I only had the opportunity to watch this maybe two and a half times. And both times it was in Italian with the the subtitles. And once I found the right subtitles, they were pretty much dead on. Right. So uh, there wasn't any ambiguity for that. But I do look forward to watching the English version because it seemed like all almost all of the dialogue was just completely different. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, you have four different writers credited on the screenplay. I wonder if who came up with the English dialogue? Was that part of the original screenplay where, you know, like you two guys work on the quote unquote real version and then you two guys work up on a 
a dumbed down version for the Americans. <laughs> right. Don't want. Uh, well, yeah, and I agree that the Italian language version is definitely more ambiguous and it does not handhold you through the mystery. Uh, as far as how and who wrote the English language dialogue, I mean, Bernard, the Bernard character was an American, so I don't know if he spoke Italian, but they needed to write something for him uh, so that he understood his own lines. And then the next you know, the next observation is if you watch it with the Italian language, are you hearing Bern the, the Bernard, whatever this act, the actor's name is for Bernard, I forget already. Um, Peter, is it Peter? Peter I forget. Baldwin. Peter Baldwin. So is it Peter Baldwin yeah. vo voice in the American or the, in the English language soundtrack, or is it his voice in the Italian or is it neither? You don't really know, or at least I don't know. So, but one of the I things don't know. That, there was a yeah. mo one one time when I was starting it up, it by default went to the English audio, and there's a scene where he's talking on the phone at the very beginning to somebody. Mm -hmm. The voice I heard in the English version was light years different than yeah. the Italian, and I would guess that the American, if any of the voices that we hear on the film are actually his. It would have been the, the English one, but I haven't seen this actor in anything else. So I don't know what his yeah. normal voice is. Well, but. and the other thing that I kind of am concluding by you, because, you know, with your bilingual ability, you can kind of say, Hey, you know, the, the subtitles and the, and the, and the dialogue soundtrack don't match. So my guess is, on this Blu-ray, which is probably where you got your copy from, the they probably did one set of subtitles that was as close a match to the Italian language as they could get. And then they did another set of subtitles that was a direct closed caption for the English version. And if you watch, and, and I didn't realize that there were two sets of subtitles in English. Um, and, and a third, obviously, for the commentary. But uh, I, that's what I think it is. If you watch it with the English... I'll go back and check and report on it next time. But if you go back and watch the movie with the English language soundtrack turned on and switch back and forth between the subtitles, you may notice that one matches and one doesn't. And that's because the one that doesn't match is the one that ad agrees with the Italian version, I think. That's my okay. that's my hypothesis. So, um, but yeah, incidentally, the commentary track is good. I didn't get through the whole thing, but it's done by Tim Lucas, who uh, did a little fanzine back in the day called The Video Watchdog, and he had a column in Fangoria, and he still does it today, and he's real, he's really good. Like, some commentaries are terrible, um, he's able, I, I'm pretty sure that he wrote the commentary and was able to record his commentary and sync it up properly. So while you're watching the film, what he's saying makes sense to what you're seeing. Cause some people huh. do live commentary and they'll go on off on, they'll go off on a tangent and, you know, obviously you can't, when you're doing live commentary, you can't pause it and rewind it and say, Oh, 
by the way, there's that scene. I forgot to mention that this happened. Um, so sometimes commentary track people will go past certain parts of the movie that they really wanted to say something about, but they're in the middle of a conversation about something else, uh, which is typically why our deep dives take four hours. Um, but, <laughs> uh, I think that the Tim Lucas one is really well done. Cause you can hear where the edits are made and you can hear like, okay, coming on the screen now is an actor named and, and, you know, uh, and it's, so it's really good. I recommend, um, if you like the film and you want to learn more about it, there is, um, an interview with a film critic, an English film critic who talks a lot about the film and how close it is to an art film. Um, but how much it, unlike an art film it is when it comes to it's, it's Jalo uh, influences. And then again, um, the commentary is also very good. So, okay. Without further ado, let's get into this film. So it opens with uh, our main character, Bernard, on the phone, um, talking to a woman. Uh, we don't see her. We just hear her voice. And it sounds like it's a breakup. And he's saying, you know, um, I love you, but I feel empty inside and I can't be with you anymore. And this is the very first inst instance where the English language version that I watched last night is different because when he's talking to her on the phone in English, she mentions something about, are you really going to go back to try to see her again? In right. other words, like some sort of a, a reference to Tilda right away in the first scene that you don't get when you watch the Italian version. Cause all they just talk about is their relationship and how it's ending. Yeah, in the Italian version, she has no idea why he's doing this. Right. But he's just cold dumping her, apparently. Yep. But yeah, they, she seems to know about Tilda in the in the English version. And he must have spoken to her about it. And now he's decided that he's going to give up their relationship to go, you know, pursue her. And she, she mentions it in their conversation. <clears throat> so again, trying to kind of give the Americans a little bit more info. Um, so we immediately roll to the credits. It's on a dark screen. We've got this very suspenseful, tense main theme. It reminds me very much of Hitchcock's movie themes. Um, exactly. Yeah. As you, as you mentioned, it's Renzo Rossellini, who is related to the director who did the soundtrack here. Um, but mm -hmm. it is the main theme that we hear uh, a few more times throughout the, the film. And the film is very sparse when it comes to the soundtrack. It's much, uh, it's similar to Les Diabolique in that we don't hear music throughout the film. And there are a lot of scenes where I think they are more effective because it's quiet. Or um, one of the things that you notice in the film is there's this constant, howling wind in the film soundtrack uh, and no, no music whatsoever, but you know, I guess it's, it's supposed to be to reinforce that, you know, there's wind is always blowing there in this town. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so after the credits are done, it's very, um, very, very not, you know, the, the credits are very matter of fact uh, with just fading in and fading out of, of names and titles. So um, now we see Bernard, he's in his car, he's driving to the lake um, and he does his first voice over narration. And um, 
At this point, he's very optimistic. He says he feels better just seeing the lake and he, he you know, he's excited about getting there. Um, from there, the next scene is Bernard arriving at the hotel. And by the way, um, we don't really know if Bernard is his first or last name, although they sometimes say Mr. Bernard. So <clears throat> I don't know if he, if, which it is, but we never hear any other name for him. So, um, Bernard is Bernard. Um, that's mm-hmm. all it is. Um, he arrives at the hotel. He sees Enrico for the first time. Now Enrico is an older man. Um, he's the caretaker and the owner of the hotel. And Enrico says, Hey, you know, this is our off season. So I can give you the very best room we have. But Bernard says, no, I'd rather have the room that I had last time I was here. And I guess the attraction of the hotel is that the best rooms face the lake, but Mm -hmm. his room actually faces uh, a a warehouse where they now do uh, butchering and slaughtering of animals, which we find out in a minute. Um, So they go up to the room and as they ascend the staircase, they talk about how Enrico would really like to remodel the hotel. Um, but he's, um, getting older now and he doesn't think that, you know, he has the money to do it and, and the, the, the time to do it and the energy to do it. And they, they get to the room and, uh, Bernard looks out the window to see the warehouse. And at that point, Enrico tells him that his son, Mario, uh, is the, uses the warehouse for butchering meat and storing meat. And he was just married. And the reason he's not here right now is he's on his honeymoon and that his daughter Irma will be very happy to have another woman in the hotel helping with some of the work because she's very overworked. Right. The next thing they talk about, which I find very funny, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast, is that (laughs) Enrico says that he had wished that he had remarried, uh, I guess implying that when, you know, because he has a daughter and a son, so he must have been married and most likely his wife has died. Um, But he says, women are a closed chapter at my age. And Bernard says, no way, dude, you're only 50. And he actually- Oh my God, yeah. He, he says it with this kind of tongue in cheek thing, like, no, you're only 50 and it must be the lake air that keeps you young. Um, and two problems I have with this, obviously, um, <laughs> because I'll be 50 in like two months and, yeah. uh, Enrico doesn't look anywhere near 50. He looks, and if you do the math on how old he was when the movie came out, he was almost 60. So um, yeah, he was actually 59. And that's yeah. the only thing that made me feel better about this whole scene. <laughs> because, uh, and I didn't catch that until the second time that I watched it, that the guy mentions, oh, you're 50. And A, there's me looking at Enrico thinking, I'm older than this guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> and... B, closed chapter at 50. What the, in whose book? Yeah. You know, don't tell me that. Uh, so I had to go back to IMDb and find out that this guy was actually 59. So I can put it feel, out of my head. Made you feel better, few, yes. Yeah. I did that same math. I'm like, come on. Now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh boy. For our- I hate seeing old people that are younger than I am. Yeah. It pisses and, me off. And the older you get, the more it happens. <laughs> I know. Funny how that works. <laughs> it's like the opposite of the, uh, of the, uh, that scene in Dazed and Confused where he says, you know, they stay the same age and I just keep getting older. The high school girls. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, for our, for our 20 and 30 somethings listening, uh, it'll happen to you. So it sure will just wait. <laughs> the alternative yeah. is not to be alive. So you don't want that. Yeah. Anyway. If you're lucky, it'll happen to you. Right. Um, so, uh, let's see here. Now Enrico leaves Bernard. Uh, no. Yeah. And, and Bernard takes out the photos of Tilda who worked at the hotel when he was there. Now, um, again, in the English language version, we already kind of have a, a, a little bit of an, in, a little bit of information about the fact that this is the reason why he went back. But in the Italian version, this is the first time that we find out about Tilda and why he came back to this hotel. Up until then, we just assume that he just needed to take a retreat. He's a writer. He wants to do some writing. He wants to get away from it all. He wants to get away from his relationship. Um, but either way, we see some pictures of Tilda and Bernard says, you know, this is why I really came back. And he assumes that she still works there and he just hasn't seen her yet. So he rings the bell, hoping that she will come to the room. And he's very excited. You can see it in his face. And they do a really cool visual thing at this moment where they slow zoom to the door after he presses the 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 call bell and mm-hmm. the only thing that you hear is the wind and you hear footsteps and like this is a really big moment and then all of a sudden the door opens and it's a completely different face and bernard like the light just you know leaves his face and you know he he, he asks for some mineral water and um, she says, okay, right away. But you can see how disappointed he is. Uh, he drops the photos on the bed. And right after that, the camera zooms in on the checkered coat that Tilda's wearing in the photo um, and transitions immediately to the next scene where that same exact coat is hanging in a closet. Uh, and right away we see that Bernard is snooping in the coat closet of somewhere downstairs, uh, elsewhere in the hotel. And Mm -hmm. we get the sense that, um, I don't don't remember if there's a voiceover here. I think there is. He says something about, you know, that he was happy to see that her coat was there because that means that she still works there. Um, uh, And maybe I thought of that and he didn't do a voiceover. I can't remember. Um, but after he closes the closet door, he runs into Irma and Irma is, um, Enrico's daughter. She does most of the work around the hotel at this point, especially with Mario being gone. And there is another woman, the woman who came to Bernard's room, who we just know as the servant. She doesn't have a name in the credits and they kind of look a little bit similar, but not really. Um, if, if you look close enough, you'll realize that Irma uh, has a different kind of a look than the maid servant, but they both have this same kind of face and hair, uh, thing going on. So it could, you, you could easily confuse the two of them at first, especially on your first viewing. Cause I think I may have. So, 
So he lies uh, to Irma about the fact that he's snooping around and says that he got <laughs> lost and he needs to find the stairs to go back to his room. He and was looking for the stairs, so he opens a door that's clearly labeled service. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, maybe he doesn't speak English. I don't know. Um, yeah. Or did it say service? Or did it? Well, it said servizio. Servizio. Okay. <laughs> so it's like the the cleaning closet or the. I guess that might be the room. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's just like the the housekeeper's locker room quarters. Or something, yeah. If yeah, her yeah. coat is hanging in there. Yeah, quarters too, because we do see that later. That uh, apparently there's a bed back there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think he tells Irma that he plans to stay for 20 to 30 days, which is, uh, you know, I guess by today's standards, that seems like a lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. But back in 1965, um, it would not be um, unimaginable for a writer to go on a retreat for a month to do some writing. So, uh Anyway, Bernard goes out for a walk outside. Uh, his voiceover comes in again. He says he feels alive again, just knowing that she's still around. Um, he passes a cafe. It looks like there's a couple of people in the cafe that know him. They knock on the window and he goes in, sits down at the table, and they, tar- they start talking about what it's like to be a writer. And they complain to each other about writing and... Uh, they talk about how there is, and you brought this up in the production credits. They talked about how there is an Etruscan ruin underneath the lake, and uh, an Etruscan ruin. Yeah, okay. or, that no, wasn't in my version. No, okay, maybe that was uh, maybe that was the American version or the English language version. Well, I mean, they say there's a village submerged in the lake. The yeah. lake hides the ruins of a town. But it doesn't say, okay, it's just the word Etruscan. I guess they added that. Yeah, they add, they must have added that to the English. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bernard says that he has difficulty writing autobiographies uh, because obviously it's much more difficult to, you know, write about stuff that, you know, is going on in your own life. And that's why he's there. Uh, because he's making a new, he's writing a new book based on his memories. And as soon as he says that, he looks up and he sees someone walking by the lake with the checkered coat on. And, you know, this obviously is not a coincidence that he says, I'm making a book of written about my memories. And there you go. There's the woman that he remembers walking. And he immediately jumps up from the table. <laughs> he leaves the conversation. They're like, where the hell are you going? And he, he follows this person. And, uh, it's a woman and she walks over to one of the stores in the town and, and he's screaming her name down the street and everything. Does he I don't remember him saying like, what does he say? Tilda? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I don't remember that part. Yeah. He comes out right when, okay. He runs out, leaves the two guys sitting there at the table. She's across the street. She goes down the store and he screams Tilda. Oh, okay. She keeps going. And it seems like she kind of hurries up. But I guess she doesn't. Then, yeah. Okay, so he calls her an email once. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't, but it I doesn't didn't. matter because it's not her. Right. It's the uh, maid servant that we saw who um, went to the went to his room when he rang the bell. Yeah. Uh, and she she comes face to face with him because she turns around to get something out of the window where he's standing there gawking at her like some psycho. <laughs> and she gives him the biggest smile like, yep. oh, hey, it's a handsome young writer that's staying at the hotel. And remember, I asked you if you needed anything else. And it's like, <laughs> dude, well, he doesn't know Tilda's gone yet, but he could have at least said, yeah, come back with that mineral water and a blonde wig. And we'll <laughs> yeah, that would have been but, great. Yeah. Yeah. You just got to improvise but, in these situations, you know. Make the best with, or do your best with what you got, right? <laughs> exactly. And he finds out Tilda's dead. What about this one? She's not chopped liver. Exactly. Yeah, and the, the smile, I mean, a big ass smile. Right. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I didn't think of that, but uh, you're right. That's why I don't write movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, once again, he is crestfallen, as they say, um, but continues to stroll around the town and stops at a photography shop or a photo shop and walks in to find. A hunchback named Francesco, who's sitting in the back working on something, and comes out and recognizes Bernard and says, Yay, how are you, sir? And uh, Bernard says, I'm fine. And they talk about Bernard's book for a little while. And um, Bernard looks at a photo that I looks like Francesco is selling some of his photos as postcards. And one of them is of Mm -hmm. the lake. And uh, he looks at the lake and has this very weird kind of reaction to it. Like it looks like he's seen a ghost, which um, is weird because you really don't, you know, although at this point they've gotten, he's gotten to this place where the lake is. And he does mention that he used to come here as a little boy. The real thing that's triggering all of his emotions is whether or not Tilda is alive or trying to find out what's going on with Tilda. And there really isn't any indication that Tilda was, you know, had anything to do with the lake yet. And even when we find out that she's dead a little bit later on, she died of a suicide attempt from poison. She didn't jump in the lake, Uh you know, so I, I don't really know what it is about this lake that's haunting him, but he puts the postcard back and then Francesco shows him a picture of Mario um, standing next to Adriana, <laughs> who is his uh, bride to be. And Francesco. And I love the photo. Right? Yeah, it's. They don't look very happy in the photo at all. Well, it looks like he's just straight up cupping one of her boobs in the oh, picture. Oh, really? Doesn't it? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see that. <laughs> it's like he's standing there like, hey, look what I got. And, well, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> I have to get there now and see what you're talking about. Okay. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yep. He's got like a claw thing going on. Yeah. It's like Wolverine with the breast. It's like he's going to squeeze it and go, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> like a car horn or something. But. <laughs> well, I, dude, I just have to take a moment um, to reflect on how bad your memory is and how I would never want to be a detective because... I swear to God, in my mind, this picture 
is not of mm-hmm. them in their wedding attire. It's of them like on the farm standing in front of a tractor or something. And that certainly isn't the case. I'm looking at it now, but that's what I remembered from the f- freaking four times I watched this thing. Isn't that just, that's crazy. Huh? But anyway, maybe that was another movie. <laughs> it probably was. <laughs> uh, so for just Francesco, uh, he tells Bernard that uh, his wife is a foreigner. Uh, she's very wealthy, and I think she's in poor health. Um, huh. I don't remember him saying she's in poor health. I don't know if he did, and I think maybe I'm adding that in because later on we find out that she's in poor health because Enrico mentions it. Um, but she's definitely a foreigner, and she's wealthy. So yeah, we hear that. Uh, back at the hotel... It's dinner time, I think. One of the things that uh, I keep noting about this movie is I have no idea what time it is or what time of day it is because of the way that they do the lighting and they do the timing and the dreams and everything else. But it looks like it's dinner time. Tilda is serving. No, it's not Tilda serving. It's Irma, right? The woman who's setting the table, setting the places. That's the new... The, the new the new Tilda. Yeah. But Irma is walking around. Yeah, I think she's the one actually serving the food to the tables. So, uh, let's see. Enrico walks over to Bernard and asks him if he has any special requests. And Bernard says, um, what about Tilda? Like, as if, you know, she's one of the things on the menu, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, as soon as Bernard mentions the word Tilda, we cut to the reaction of Enrico and his face goes completely sullen and he leans in and says, um, she's dead. Um, she killed herself and, um, we don't really know why. And she was like a daughter to us. And while he's in the middle of explaining this uh tilda comes over and brings him some coffee so they stop talking about it and uh this happens a lot and i don't know a lot but this happens a few times in the movie where tilda kind of interrupts what people are talking about where irma does yeah i keep saying tilda when i mean irma i'm sorry yes it's it's irma now about that considering i don't know i guess my interpretation of the end which yeah. I'm not really sure if it's 100% correct. But watching it through the second time, when he says she's like a daughter to us, I found that carried a little more weight the second time I watched it. Yeah. Are you thinking along the same lines? Yeah, you know, I kind of threw that line away. I don't. I didn't really pay too much attention to it because... Um, the I think the information that Enrico gives gives us as the audience about the fact that she has died and the fact that um, it was a suicide that kind of stays with me and I didn't really remember him saying that but it's definitely significant because of the implications of what had happened and why she died right and what we really right. find out eventually um, but yeah I, I don't think I picked up on that so um, okay. So 
at this point, the, we start hearing the tense music playing again, and uh, Bernard goes back to his room. He starts pacing back and forth, um, and he says that he knows he should really just leave uh, now that he knows that Tilda's dead, but he doesn't want to. And he starts to think back to the moment in the past, and he says, you know, who was Tilda? You know, uh, wh- who was she? Re- who was she really? And we have our first uh, scene that, um, suggests that there is more than one reality going on in this movie. And we could call it a dream. We could call it a vision. We could call it a memory. Um, we could call it an alternate reality. And you can tell from a visual standpoint, because the, 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 the visuals are now very kind of overexposed, there's, um, the, the, the picture looks washed out. It looks blurry. And that's, I guess, yeah. an indicator that we are not in the present moment anymore. But, mm-hmm. uh, we start looking at this, uh, scene where it's wintertime and we are in the woods looking up at all of these bare trees. There's a lot of snow on the ground. We're in a graveyard and we see a woman with a checkered coat walking, uh, through the graveyard and, uh, out of the frame. And then we see Bernard and he decides that he's going to go and follow her. And, um, he keeps following her and eventually she turns into a walkway that leads to a building. And at first I thought it was the hotel. And then on second watch, I said, no, it's probably something else. And then again, on third watch, I said, no, it is the hotel. Um, but just, you know, it's so ambiguous that, you know, it could be both or could be neither. It's like, you know, when, when Bernard walks to the door, this overexposed, image you can't even see his face because it's so washed out in the background and is the slow camera pan looking at the floor and heading in and eventually we get to a scene where um there is a crack in the door and we see an eye peering through it to see what's going on and i actually no you know what it is the hotel now because i've noticed as i'm watching this that when they turn the corner, there is a mirror, I think, that mm-hmm. is hanging on the left side, and it's tilted down where it's not it's not flush against the wall. It's like angled so that the top part is projecting out from the wall and the the bottom part is flushed against the wall. And we see that exact same angle a second time towards the end of the film. And the okay. funny, the funny, the funny part for me was I thought it was a plasma TV. Um, <laughs> like I'm so used to seeing TVs hanging on walls now. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, when he goes into that room, we see shelves full of like bed sheets and pillowcases and things right. like that. So that must be the, the linens room or laundry room or something like that. Yeah. And he goes in there later um, after the, f- the funeral when Enrico comes home uh, into that same room to, to, to do more spying. And it's that same kind of point of view 
you know, panning or, you know, it, I guess it's a dolly. I don't know what you call it. Maybe it was handheld camera. Um, that's, you know, kind of giving you that first person perspective of Bernard. And as he's walking down the hallway, it almost repeats like exactly later on in the movie. Mm. <clears throat> but yeah, he comes to a washroom and there is a wooden door with a crack in it. And he looks through this hole and then the camera cuts to an eye. And, you know, it's not, the cool part about this is it's not explicitly shown that Bernard is looking through this thing. Um, we make that assumption because of the way that the editing has led us, led us to uh, kind of deduce that Bernard is walking and you see him and then you see what he's looking at and then you see him and then you see what he's looking at. Um, and now we see uh, just an eye looking through the crack. But I mean, if it's not him, who is it, right? But... Uh, you know, there there really isn't any other suspects or there isn't any alternative to who it could be, but it just kind of lends itself to a little bit of the ambiguity of what's really going on. Did this really happen? How much does he remember? Um, is he having selective memory? And once we see what the eye is seeing, the visuals of the frame completely go back to their normal, crisp, in focus, lit properly, uh, you know, like the, the way that they were before this little dream sequence started. And we see Tilda for the first time. And, um, you know, the lighting in these scenes is just impeccable. I mean, it's, you know, the, the different, the depth of, of contrasts and, you know, it's black and white, but there are so many different grays and gray tones and dimensions going on in her face and her hair and the lighting. It's just so exquisitely filmed. It's like, it's like watching a painting. It's like watching, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't know how to describe it any other way than it's just, you know, um, just beautiful. It's, it's, she's beautiful and the scene is beautiful um, she is in bed with a man and there's no indicator as to who this man is because we don't see a face. We just see body parts and arms and whatnot. And <clears throat> just to take a, a, a moment aside to, uh, for me to add a little bit more to what I was saying about the visuals and the, the compositions and the lighting. If you watch Bazzoni's other two films, it's the same thing. Like he just had this impeccable visual style. The fifth chord is probably one of my favorite Jalo films, primarily for its visual style. Um, there are other great things about the film too, that I really like that put it up there in, in my favorites, but the, the composition of images in the fifth chord is just unbelievable. And uh, footprints, which some people don't really like because it's weird and uh, it drags and it's kind of not really a, a classic giallo. Um, but it, it, again, it's the same thing. It's just, it's so gorgeously filmed and framed and lit. And so it's clear that, you know, Bazzoni had something to do with 
the way that these films were visually uh, constructed. I just, you know, obviously there were more yeah. people involved in the move, making of the movie than just he was with cameras and lighting and, and so on. But uh, it really comes through in this particular scene. I think it's just amazing. Yeah, this scene is gorgeous. And I think maybe just from growing up watching black and white stuff on TV on the weekends, I had kind of uh, allowed myself to think that anything that's old and in black and white is not going to look too good. Right. Maybe because in my mind I attributed that to, well, the cameras weren't as good back then or whatever. It probably had a lot to do with me watching it on a shitty CRT TV as everybody had back in the day. Yeah, right. But considering this is from 65 mm. and we're seeing the scene where, I mean, uh, yeah, it's probably a, a Blu-ray a, a remaster or something, but you can see every hair on her head yeah. through the light. And it's just so sharp and amazing. It it looks well. It's it looks like a, a painting, you know. Yeah, one of those films where you could just pause it and print it and hang it on your wall. Yeah, absolutely. And I was very impressed with that. Well, and you know the other thing to 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 say is that at, in this particular time period, you know, in order to achieve that kind of a, an effect from your equipment, it's all manual and everything had to be mm -hmm. done by hand. You know, you could achieve a very similar result from today's modern technology. And most of the focusing and most of the lighting and most of the enhancements would be done automatically by the computers. But in 65, it's like, you know, the focus and the lighting and uh, the camera movements and everything needed to be done manually. And, uh, and on top of that, you had different choices in film stock that you could use. Right. How they would react to different lighting situations and different apertures and F spots or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, right. And then you had the developing of the negatives themselves. Like yeah. the color timing. Well, not color timing, but I guess for black and white, <laughs> they have black. something. They have, yeah, right. Something, you know. uh, it's... Um, it, to me, it's amazing that anybody made movies before we all had digital cameras <laughs> in our pockets. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no doubt. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It really is watching this. And um, the other thing that it was only brought to my attention when I watched the documentary review of the film on the Blu-ray is that there's a scene that starts at, there's a sequence that starts at 20, I guess it's 2012. Wait, no, hold on. It starts, it starts around 2012 and it goes to the eye looking and then we see Tilda with the man that she's with. She she raises her head up. And then when she goes back down, they they do it three different times. Like she, yeah. goes, she goes down, it cuts, she goes down again, it cuts, she goes down again. And I mean, I don't think that that was done for any sort of narrative enhancement, but it's just to 
I guess, enhance the fact that we may be watching something that either isn't real or isn't based in reality. And, you know, like, because it's just this, these jagged cuts of her moving the same way three times in a row, it can't, mm-hmm. you know, and up until that point, it was, it was all fluid motion and movement. And so, you know, the cuts basically were between the eye and, and, and her, but I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just something that I noticed because it was called out uh, when they were talking. Well, about those it. movements seem to be almost slow motion. Yeah, especially at the very beginning when she, we see her rising up off of the bed and we see the back of her head and her shoulders. Yeah. One of the clues I think that this is a fantasy is that he follows her to that building and goes in and by the time he gets to the door she's already undressed and in bed and involved in her uh, activity that he's watching. Which seems pretty quick. Yes. I mean, I would think if you're following somebody and they're going to start having sex with somebody, it's not going to be, you know, they're already engaged by the time you get to the window. I mean, he would have peeked through and saw her talking and, you know, slowly taking off her coat. And, I don't know. I think we would have seen more of it. But this, like the earlier part where she, he sees her walking through the woods. At first I was thinking, oh, this is a memory. But then it kind of leads straight into this. And I'm like, well, no, he's not remembering her going down three times. And if that is what he's remembering, it kind of, no, I kind of feel bad that it's in a movie like this. Yeah. If that was in like strip nude for your killer, I'd be like, she went down three times. I get it. Right. (laughs) But, There would be a here. I think that's kind uh, of connotation. Yeah, I think that might be Bazzoni hanging a, a lantern on the fact that this is a fantasy. Yeah, or his imagination. Yep. And memory, imagination, and uh, or fantasy uh, is something that they use pretty interestingly yeah. throughout this film. Yeah, like just this whole. Um, well, I mean, I guess you could. You know, the the idea of the unreliable narrator, it's not exactly that because, um, you know, our, our main character, he thinks that what he saw is what happened, but then he really evaluates it throughout the movie. And the unreliable narrator is really one that, you know, it's just the person who either wrote the book or made the movie creates a character who you can't trust. Um mm-hmm. And that's kind of different with this. So, uh, cause you, you, he, he really wants to know the truth. He just doesn't know if what he remembers is exactly right. So, um, suddenly he is, uh, jolted awake back into what we think is his normal reality to screams and yells coming from outside. And I guess one of the things that's really important for me to talk about is, Whenever I keep saying things like, it's hard for me to tell whether it's daytime or nighttime in this movie, is partially because scenes like this, where he looks out the window, and there's a lot of scenes in this movie where um, Bernard looks out the window. 
And a lot of times when he looks out the window, it looks like there is a pretty bright light shining on his face, which most of the time I assume is the sun. And it may not be. And then when you when it cuts to the old man who's yelling and coughing, standing out by the trees, it's very bright. And you could assume that, you know, it was a day for night shot. But I think that they did. I mean, you could you could argue it was a day for night shot, but they they did so many technical things in this that I don't think they filmed during the day to make it a night shot. I think they lit the scene um, in a specific way. And maybe it's supposed to be the moon um, over the lake. Cause there's a lot of scenes where there's a, a shot of the lake and it's bright and it's supposed to be nighttime. Yeah. But then again, um, it's the ambiguity of, is it nighttime? Is it daytime? Like what happened to Bernard? He went back to his room after dinner. We think it was dinner and he, he, he had something to drink and he paced around a little bit. And then he had this fantasy about uh, what he remembers. And then he wakes up. Now, did he wake up after sleeping for a long time? Did he just take a nap? Um, you know, and that the question of what just happened and what time is it and what time of day is it comes up over and over again uh, in this movie. But getting back to the scene that we're in, there is this old man and he is you know, yelling at the, what looks like he's yelling at the hotel or he's yelling at the building. And, um, he says, I'll see you all in jail. And he coughs and sputters. He's drunk. Um, now interesting footnote here. If you watch the English version, he says in English, I know about Tilda. I wrote that part down because I remember him saying it. I know what I know about Tilda. Like he mentions Tilda by name in the English version and in the Italian version, he doesn't. All he says is, you know, I, you know, you bastards, um, I'll see you in jail. So again, another instance where I think they were trying to push the narrative a little bit more concretely, you know, with uh, the, the, well, I think that's kind of unnecessary because just a few scenes later you hear, Francesco tell Bernard that, uh, yeah, her dad's some drunk guy that goes around at night screaming at the hotel. Yeah. What, yeah I think we, even yeah, the most, uh, even the densest audience member would be able to connect that dot and not leave saying, who is that guy drunk and screaming at the hotel and not get it. But apparently they thought that we need to spell it out for some people and, no, I'm glad we have the option to not have to be uh, pandered to so much <laughs> or spoon fed everything. Well, I mean, the you know, the, the characterization of Americans being dumb hasn't really changed. Uh, <laughs> it's not getting better. It's not getting any better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but <laughs> get your Trump NFTs, everybody. Um, <laughs> uh, or any NFTs. Yeah. Well, yeah, so, I'm going to sell some of my own. Yeah, the people that bought those Trump NFTs are actually making a lot of money because the people who really want them um, are paying a lot of money for them. And, you know, it was probably a smart investment. But anyway, so <laughs> okay. later on the uh, the crypto chow chow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you so, get so much more than Jalo 
reviews. You sure do, but I edit most of it out, so you really don't. I right. don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but you know, so we don't we don't really find out that the rest of the town suspects that Enrico and his family had something to do with Tilda's death until the next day when Bernard goes to talk to Francesco, um, which happens, like you said, in the very next scene. So, um, and I really enjoyed this little sequence daytime. I wrote, we don't, I guess we it's daytime Bernard. Um, he walks by the lake. He goes back to Francesco's store and immediately walks in and says, Hey, how come you didn't tell me about Tilda? And, Francesco says, you know, there were so many rumors about her death. I just kept out of it. I stick to my, my photos and my business. But then as soon as he says that, he says, by the way, do you know what really happened? And Bernard was like, yeah, it was a suicide. And he says, no, she was found with her throat cut. <clears throat> and um, Francesco says, no one really knows what happened except Tilda and maybe someone else. Um, and when he says that he walks over to the cabinet and he gets something out of one of his cameras and then they walk into the back where they have a projection screening room and Francesco pulls the overhead, uh, blind clothes to make the room dark and projects this, uh, photo negative onto the projection screen. And it's a group of young people and you know, it's, What's really, in, I don't know, tell me what you think about this, but <clears throat> the idea of using a negative instead of an actual slide of a developed photo is really interesting that they decided to do that. I mean, on the one hand, you could just say, look, that's just the nature of the photography business back then. But also, it kind of obscures what really is what you're really looking at because everything is opposite color wise. And mm -hmm. there is an emphasis when you look at this, like, am I seeing, am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? Because it's a photo of, I think five people and Tilda is supposed to be the one in the middle. And, you know, in the photo, you know, she has, black skin and a white coat on, which means that in the photo really, or in real life, um, she was wearing a black coat and, um, Francesco points at her midsection and says, see this here. She is obviously pregnant. And, um, they talk about it for a little bit. And, uh, Bernard says, but it could be just the way that she's standing, the way that she's leaning. And, Francesco says, no, for sure she was pregnant. I don't know how he knows um, because it's all just rumor and conjecture by the townspeople, but he, he seems to be pretty determined that she was pregnant and um, he kind of infers or kind of hints at the fact that um, the knife that was found in the murder scene belong to Enrico. But before that happens, I actually wanted to, let's see, did this happen before or after? So before they walk up to the photo, there's this beautiful shot 
again, it's just visual um, eye candy of Francesco and Bernard standing at the projector and he's focusing the light and there's all of this dust that the projector light is picking up that's just floating around in the air. And it's just, again, it's just Mm -hmm. such a gorgeous composition. It doesn't really mean anything important, but I just thought it was just really memorable. Um, but anyway, they start talking about the fact that, you know, the, the townspeople seem to think that, um, Enrico and Tilda were getting it on and that's why she got pregnant and that's why she was killed. Um, So before the end of the scene, um, let's see. Like I said, Francesco suspects that it was Enrico as well as the rest of the town because the knife belonged to him. Um, but it seems... And how, would, how does he know that the knife belonged to him? Yeah, I don't know. What knife? They let the, fo- the town Photoshop guy find the knife? Or- yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's just the rumors... That must have circulated out of the hotel, right? I mean, you know, we find out later that Tilda found the body. And so if Tilda found the body, that means that she was killed in the hotel, which means that the rest of the servants who worked at the hotel probably found out and they started talking and it probably got back to um, Francesco. But that's the only reason why he could have known. He wasn't there. He couldn't have been. Okay. I don't think. So I don't know. Yeah. So the last thing that they talk about is that despite the fact that he knows her throat was cut and that she was pregnant, the police have deemed it a suicide. Um, and that they even said that um the autopsy found that uh she was still a virgin. And then Bernard says well, and, and he he implies that uh, the money that the family has was used to pay off the police to you know to sweep all of the other information under the rug. And Bernard says, "Well, I know she wasn't a virgin, and it's not because you told me that. I know because I saw her with a man, and I can tell you that it wasn't Enrico because this man uh, looked a lot younger. He was muscular. He was probably thirty, thirty-five. Um, and it might've been uh, a boyfriend, but it certainly wasn't Enrico. And, uh, before the end of the scene, Francesco mentions that Tilda had a father who just happens to be the town drunk. And Bernard says, Hey, uh, that must be the guy I just saw yesterday or this morning or last night or whenever it was. And, um, Bernard says, okay, uh, I want to meet with this guy. I want to ask him about what's going on. And Francesco says, ah, so it was you came back for her. That's why you're here. And uh, he's like, duh. I mean, haven't you watched this movie yet? So um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so that's the end of that scene. And, uh, you know, Bernard, uh, let's see. He goes back to the hotel. Um, at this point, he's a little bit more um, kind of the word I'm looking for. Um, he's more combative a little bit 
with Enrico because now he's suspicious of what happened to Tilda. And, you know, he sends back the, the fish because it doesn't smell good. And Enrico says, uh, I don't, you know, do you want something else? And Bernard says, no, I just don't feel well. And so um, he gets up and leaves. He goes back to his room. And while they're on the stairs, he says, you know, do you know whether or not Tilda had a boyfriend? And Enrico says, I don't know. Why do you ask? Um, but he doesn't say, I don't think he says, why do you ask? He says, I just don't, I don't know. And, uh, but, but Enrico, you know, looks very suspicious when he asks him that. So, um, Bernard goes back up to his room again and, or no, I think somewhere in here, they insert a shot of Irma looking distraught. Oh yes, that's right. She's like, she's in the room that's behind Enrico and Bernard Mm -hmm. notices her and she's got this kind of traumatized, you know, distraught look on her face. And then she walks out and that's when, um, and that's when, uh, Bernard asks about, uh, Tilda's boyfriend. And then he goes upstairs, uh, to go to bed because he doesn't feel well. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's see. He goes back up into his room. He starts drinking again and pacing back and forth like he was doing the first time he went up to his room. And uh, we have another. Let's see. Yeah, we have another flashback or a vision or a dream or some sort of memory. And this time it's. Um, let me see here. Shot of the lake. Shot of some old shutters and Bernard and Tilda together. Tilda's hair is pulled back and they are kissing. Um, this is where I think she looks like Sharon Stone, by the way. Um, and she keeps opening her eyes while they're kissing as if to, to, to kind of give some sort of a hint that she's either really not into it or she's... Um, She's suspicious or she's up to something, but nothing really happens. This scene seems very weird to me. I mean, I think it was, it's in here because we need to know that Bernard had more than just, uh, you know, had more than just a, a relationship with Tilda. That was just that he was admiring her from afar. It looks like, at least in his mind, they had an encounter of some sort. Now, whether this is a fantasy or whether it really happened, we really don't know. Um, yeah, but even then, in the fantasy, as soon as, well, they kiss for a while. Yeah. And then, bam, she leaves and closes the door and gives him this look. And, like you said, the fact that she keeps opening her eyes while they're making out, and that's kind of weird. And if this is his fantasy or some kind of thing he's imagining, why would that be included? Exactly. So I think this movie's trying to keep you on your toes. Yeah. And in the end, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. No, it doesn't. 
But I, like I said, I think that, you know, again, to, to drive home, you know, the obsession that Bernard has for driving all the way back here and trying to figure all this out um, and leaving yeah. his girlfriend, you know, it can be, it can't be, it, it's gotta be more than just, he saw her and thought she looked pretty and then spied on her having sex with somebody else. And decided he was in love with her. Yeah. <laughs> and dumps poor Claudia back at the beginning of the movie. But to- And then, you know, why, if you already knew that she was sleeping around, like, you know, why would you be that in love with her? Because clearly, you know, if she's going to be, you know, in in some sort of physical encounter with you as well as the other person you spied on, then... You know, what good is she? She's just the town floozy. And he just heard from Francesco that she was the lover of Enrico, which was A, her boss, and, you know, apparently she slipped into his closed chapter on women. (laughs) But you tell Francesco, no, it wasn't Enrico. This was a much younger guy. Okay, so that's at least two different people she's banging. Right, plus you. And, you know, not to be a prude, but I think I'd you know, look for love somewhere else. <laughs> maybe not dump Claudia and drive across Italy to... Eh. <laughs> now, the um, the place that you said this was filmed, um, mm-hmm. they don't really say in the movie where they are, but are we supposed to kind of, as a viewing audience... Well, I guess it's a dumb... It's It's kind of a question that has really no reason to be asked, but... Are we supposed to think that the real place where this is filmed is where the story takes place or did you, or maybe I guess my question is, did you, did you feel that way watching it? Or was it more like, you know, cause me watching it, like, I don't know these areas, so I wouldn't be able to identify even the most, you know, popular landmarks in places of Italy. But in here, it's like, it just looks like a lake in an old town in an old European town. Um, but when you're watching it, you know, you're saying, Oh, I, I kind of know where that is. And did, did that take away from your feeling like this was just some sort of nameless place? No. Um, I live right at the foothills of the Dolomite mountains. And the Dolomites kind of merge into the Alps at at some point. And in looking up information about this film, I came across the fact that it was uh, the mountains that you see around the lake. Um, Actually, those for this part of the world, we would call those hills. They look like mountains if you're from Kansas or something. Right. Exactly. They're they're more the hills, um, but it was in the Dolomites. So I thought, oh shit, I live in northern Italy, close to the Dolomites. So I dug around a little more and found that the original novel that this film is based on, written by Giovanni Comiso, was about a town called Alege, and. Uh, the whole thing about the string of murders and one of them happening in a hotel in the town of Alleghe. And then I went digging into um, Italian websites 
that were talking about this film and found out that this was in fact filmed in Alege. And okay, well, Google Maps. Oh shit, that's in the province of Belluno. I know people that go to Belluno for the weekends just to hang out with their friends. It can't be that far. Hmm. Okay. And it's in the region of Veneto, which is just one region over from us. So like, you know, Pennsylvania to New York State. I mean, not in size, but you know, it's it's an extra neighbor to my region. Gotcha. And then I saw how close it was, and I found some website that did uh, distance calculation where you put in two places. And maybe you can do it on Google Maps. I'm just not smart enough. <laughs> but I saw that it was only like 38 miles away in a straight line. To drive there, it'd be like 80 miles because you have to twist and turn around these mountains to, oh, to get there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. And there are lots of lakes in these mountains because if you imagine valleys and rainfall and creeks and things, any place you have a low spot between two mountains that are kind of jammed together is going to form a lake. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so at first I was just impressed enough that this place was so close to where I lived, but then I read more about how the lake was formed. And that ties into the uh, the whole part of the, there's a village submerged in the lake. Yeah. Um, there are stories in the South in America when the Tennessee Valley Authority was setting up dams that they would purposely vacate uh, or evacuate a town and flood the valley to, to you know, to... stop up a river and create a a dam. But the fact that this started with a disaster and this lake is kind of haunted, if you think about it, Mm. because at least four or five villages were just wiped out. Uh, Yeah. Three of them almost immediately, they were either uh, swept away or buried in the landslides. And, uh, You know, that's that's not too far. So that's why I was thinking maybe this summer I'll go there, just because it's kind of interesting from a morbid curiosity point of view. Yeah, right. And then that ties that's in cool. with the the string of murders, and you know, this place gets a lot of attention because it uh, of all the creepy history that it has. Yeah. But in honesty, watching this film, I had no idea where it was. I just thought mountains and lakes. Yeah, you know, around here you can't drive 50 kilometers in any direction. Well, you can because if you drive away from the mountains. <laughs> you can't drive for right, more than right. half an hour in the mountains without finding a lake. So I didn't know right exactly where it was. So, So really only the people who are really familiar with the story, the town, and the area of the country that this happened in would recognize it. And and the idea that for everybody else, it's really just kind of a nameless place. Um, it's kind of, you know, the way, the way it is for, for most people who watch it, especially if you're not from that area. So, okay. Yeah. I do have friends that are from here and 
uh, one in particular, I will ask him the next time I'm uh, having coffee with him down on the square. I'll ask him if he knows about Alega and the the story behind it. Either the, the landslide story or the string of murders story. And then I'll ask him if he's ever seen this film and... You know, he might say yes He'll to say all no. of that, or yeah. And if he says no, I'll say, "Well, you need to subscribe to this podcast so you could learn something about your own fucking country." Dude. <laughs> from from an American, right? Okay. Um, all very interesting stuff. That was cool. So after this vision ends, uh, Bernard gets up and looks out the door, and he sees that. Lo and behold, the honeymoon is over, literally, because uh, Mario and his bride, Adriana, have come home, and we find out not too much later that she is having post-honeymoon syndrome, whatever that is. Uh, it's a woman thing, according to Enrico. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we also see uh, Irma, and she is... a. Once again, distraught in the laundry room with her head on mm. her head on her hand, and she doesn't know what to do. And um, that's pretty much it. We go to the next scene. It looks like it's daytime, um, but meanwhile, uh, <laughs> Bernard is sleeping, and it, maybe he's just waking up for the first time, or maybe not. Um, no, he's having a dream. That's right. This is this is a really interesting uh, sequence because, again, I don't know why. Let me go back and actually look at this frame by frame. So the scene ends with Tilda holding her head in her hand. Irma. Then, yeah, I keep saying Tilda. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, Irma. We fade to a shot of the lake, which clearly is during the daytime. And then we cut to Bernard in his bed. Mm -hmm. From there, we go to this kind of abstract, blurry blob of shape that moves and eventually um, materializes into the frame. And it is Irma. It's Irma's face and she comes into the frame. But again, uh, her face is really washed out, overexposed. The contrast is super saturated and it seems like she's talking to him because she says, are you sleeping? I can't sleep. Um, and then she goes into this um, sort of confession where she says she's afraid for her family, for the business. And then she says, yes, it was me. Um, and before you make any conclusions about what she means, she says, I found her. Um, and before the I found her part comes, it was like, or maybe she's confessing to the murder, but she says, no, I found her. And um, then I think she asks him, she ask him for help? I forget what she says at the end of the of this dream. Does she ask him to leave? No, she asks. I mean, she asks him to leave later on in yeah, the movie. That comes later, yeah. yeah. 
What does she say here? There's something hanging over the family that's dragging us towards disaster. Blah, blah, blah. My father You've did- seen it. Yeah. We have no more guests. Which, some of this is conflicting, because when she first saw uh, Bernard at the hotel, she mentions, oh yeah, we're always busy, there's always people coming. And this is right after Enrico said, oh, this is a slow time of year, you can have any room you want. Right. And now, and plus it seemed like when Francesco was talking to Bernard, he was saying that, oh, that family is very rich and powerful. Every Nobody fucks with them. And now she's like, oh, nobody talks to us. People in town avoid us. And if they're so rich and powerful, why was Enrico crying about not having enough money to remodel the, the hotel? Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's part of the intent from the filmmakers. It's just kind of keep everything in flux where you don't really know what's going on. Yeah. It, or what it, the situation it's gotta is. be, it's gotta be, it's, it's gotta be them saying, you know, uh, we're, we're giving you visual clues about what you should probably decide is a fantasy versus reality. But we're also going to give you some narrative information that conflicts with this. Um, so that maybe, n- you know, it, it's it's impossible for you to really know what's going on and what's happening and what's real and what isn't. Because you're right. I mean, if, it, you know, unless the only other thing that could explain it is that the that the family gives off a image that they are wealthy and powerful when they really aren't. Um and, you know, when Bernard first gets there, Enrico says, it's our slow season. But the next scene, when they're having dinner, there is another group of people there. And it looks like they're busy enough to have enough people needed to do the dinner service. But it could also well, be that- Some hotels like that that have restaurants, a lot of times people will go to the restaurant to eat right. something, but they're not- they don't stay. Staying overnight yeah. in the hotel. Yep. So maybe that's it. Maybe since the death of Tilda, word has got around. And like Francesco says, everybody knows it, but nobody's saying it because they're so rich and powerful. Maybe in the the meantime, between Tilda dying and Bernard coming back, people have stopped going to the hotel. And now they're facing financial ruin and... Uh, Irma understands that people are, that, you know, that their family name has been dishonored. Right. And, okay. I love figuring shit out, talking out loud. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that could make, that could make sense, but it's also, you know, it's clear that, you know, one of the objectives of the filmmakers here is to, try their best to confuse the audience because you know um, with the with the was it a fantasy or was it a memory type thing yeah right yeah so after um irma's little diatribe uh bernard wakes up again and he's in the bed and this time the light is shining through the window so we can assume it's daytime um 
He looks out the window uh, to the warehouse and he sees Enrico and Mario. And they are butchering some sort of animal. I think it's a cow. It's hanging up yeah, inside so the um, warehouse, slaughterhouse. And then he looks to the to his right, our left, and sees Adriana also looking out the window. And um, she's she's looking at what they're doing. She looks a little bit weird and not happy. Um, I don't yeah. know how you could. I don't know how you could look out the window and see your husband splitting a cow in half and smile, but, um, yeah, she seems a little affected by it. Yeah. Like maybe he messed up and married a vegan or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and they also say that she's a foreigner and later on, I think Enrico says that, you know, she's having trouble adjusting. So, you know, here's this guy Mario, who comes from this family who obviously is powerful in the town, he marries a woman who has been labeled as wealthy. Maybe she's more wealthy than he is, but regardless, since she's a woman, she's going to come back to the hotel and work there. I mean, you know, in 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 a different time, if she was came from a wealthy family, the husband would just kind of let her be the person who was the the provider. But at this point it's like, um, you know, she has, yeah, to, it sounds like a raw deal for her. Yeah. It kind of sucks for her. Absolutely. Um, and even though they're coming back from their honeymoon, even in the photograph that we see in Francesco's Photoshop and the way they come in when, uh, Bernard is peeking out the door and sees them in the hallway. Yeah. I don't get any, hint of affection between her and Mario. No. Ever in this film. No, they definitely and do not look happy in any in any of these situations. Yeah. Which is weird. So, let's see. Um Bernard goes to the graveyard. Uh, to look for Tilda's grave. And in this case, you know, you can see a difference between the way that the graveyard is photographed and the way it was photographed in his, fa- in his flashback. Um, he finds her grave <clears throat> and the tombstones are made out of like tree, tree trunks and tree, tree branches, which is kind of weird. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen that before, but uh, yeah, I haven't seen that anywhere. He, he finds her grave, he sees the photo, and immediately he has another flashback. And in this particular flashback, it's Tilda again in bed with a man. But in this sequence, the camera continues to show the face of the man who's on top of her. And I, it's not completely 100% obvious, but it looks, you know, you can, you can clearly see Enrico in the, in the picture. And I assume that the other man with his shirt off is Mario. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not obvious that it's him. And that's because like, it's just a different angle and the lighting's different. And he looks different than the first, the, the other couple of times that we've seen him so far. Yeah. But it's not clear who the other person is in this fantasy. And it, it's either, 
one or the other, or it's both. And, and we find out it's both later. Um, but um, let's see. There's this really haunting soundtrack that's going on during this scene where it's just um, this echoing kind of shrieking moaning sound. And that's kind of it. You know, you don't hear any noises from the lovemaking and you don't even hear the wind blowing. You just kind of hear these weird little scratches and then you hear what could be a woman screaming or moaning, or it could be some sort of bird or something, but it's very faint. It's echoey in the distance and it's very weird. Very, very weird. Um, after that scene, let's see. <sighs> it's nighttime. Did I lose you, Al? Or are you still there? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. I didn't well, know. after that, we see um, we see Bernard at the pharmacist buying some drugs. Yes, he goes to the pharmacist, and then as he's walking back, he sees somebody walking by the lake. A woman, a figure, very reminiscent of the Tilda figure that he remembers from the past, but the jacket is different. So, uh, and um, he says, you know, I saw her and at first I didn't recognize who it was, but then I realized it was Adriana. And I don't think he calls out to her at this point. I think he just sees her and she's walking and that's it. Yeah. The scene ends. Yeah. So now again, like, I'm sorry to beat this dead horse, but trying to figure out how this works from a linear time frame perspective, if Bernard was out and he went to, you know, I, I'm assuming multiple days have passed at this point because now he walks into the lobby of the hotel Enrico's standing back there and it's daytime. It's clearly daytime, but she only mm-hmm. is walking at night. So if he's, you know, if you're supposed to, or if you're being led to believe that these things are happening in sequence, he went out, he went to the pharmacist after he, you know, he went to the graveyard, he found Tilda's grave. Then he went to the drugstore. Now it's nighttime, but now he comes back to the hotel and it's daytime, but maybe a bunch of days have passed and it's just, you know, a different scene. So he walks in and, uh, Enrico gives him his mail and, um, He's reading the mail and the mail says something about, let's see, it's from Francesco and it says, I've discovered something that you'll want to know about. And besides, um, I'm sure a man like you would enjoy fishing on the lake. And while he's reading this, uh, Enrico tells him that Adriana is not well. This is where he says she's having, you know, some sort of an issue adapting to normal life after the honeymoon. Um, and that's it. So uh, Bernard goes back uh, up to his room. And this is like a really interesting thing that comes next. 
uh, he leaves the lobby and he turns and goes up the stairs, which does not look like a closet at all. Uh, <laughs> and the next scene we see what I would assume to be the sun hidden by clouds and a very, very close up left to right pan of this shimmering water, which is out of focus in the background. And then uh, a face, which it's hard to initially make out who it is, but it's Francesco and Mm -hmm. Francesco and Bernard are out in a boat on the lake and they're talking about, you know, why the hell did you bring me out here? And Francesco says, you're going to see soon enough. And he pulls out his binoculars and he says, look over there. And Bernard says, yeah, it's Adriana and she's walking by the lake. Um, Why did you bring me all the way out here just to see that? And then they start fighting about um, Tilda. And they start arguing about the fact that Francesco is still very suspicious about the family and Bernard says, I don't know why, you know, you're so suspicious. And Fran Francisco says something about we're all hunchbacks of one sort or another. And I don't know, did he actually say that in Italian? <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, and then Bernard tells Francesco that, um, you know, I've had enough of your crazy suspicions. I feel like I'm losing touch with reality. And then Francesco says that the situation is getting more and more absurd. And then he starts to laugh. And then um, the next thing we know, Francesco uh, wakes up and he's in his bed. And as it turns out, that meeting that Francesco had asked for really didn't happen. This was... Um, a dream or even a, you could call it a fever dream. Cause at this point, Bernard is coming down with some sort of influenza like, uh, well, the meeting episode. he asked for hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Right. Right. Cause that's the one uh, where they go to visit her dad. But again, when he wakes up, it could be the middle of the night. But, you know, he came back, he got the letter from Francesco, he went up to his room, he went to bed, and he had a dream about the meeting. And then he wakes up from the dream, takes a pill, and, you know, maybe goes back to bed. Let's see, I think he walks over to the window again. Yeah, he looks out the window again, (laughs) and he sees Adriana walking. And here again, is that the sun rising over the lake? Is it nighttime or daytime? Yeah, is that the sun rising on the lake, or... Is it the moon? You know, because she only walks at night, right? Don't we hear about that? So, um, anyway, he meets up with Francesco, and um, they're in the woods. And uh, let's see. <clears throat> they go to see uh, Tilda's father, and his name is Severio, I think. Um And Mm -hmm. they talk a little bit about the fact that Adriana never leaves the house except for walking at night. And um, the marriage has failed already, even though it just, you know, it just started. And I don't know why Mario puts up with this. Um, You know, it's a shame that, you know, this marriage didn't work out. They're not really giving it much of a chance, but... um, 
Eventually, they continue to talk and they make their way over to this little hut where Tilda's father lives. I don't know if it's a hut. I mean, it's just kind of like a, a, what would you call that? Some sort of a makeshift shelter shack. It's barely even a shack. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But what we notice is Mario coming out of the shack and walking away. He doesn't notice Francesco and Bernard uh, waiting in the woods. Um, but it's very suspicious. So then they go and they open the door and they go in and there is the father and he is, uh, he's accused of being drunk. He's staring at the floor. Um, they start asking him questions. Hey, this is my friend Bernard. He wants to know about Tilda. <clears throat> now, the first time you saw this, did you think he was dead? No. Oh, I didn't. I did. Because the way we see Mario walking out and they go in and you kind of see him from behind. You don't see his face and he's super still. He's not moving at all. I thought it was going to be one of those reveals where they tap him on the shoulder and he falls over dead or something. But Yeah, but you've seen one too many classic Jalo films, I guess, because. Yeah, because that's definitely what they would have done in 1972. It would have tapped him on the shoulder. Yeah. It would have fell over with a knife, you know, stuck in his chest or something, you know. Or face first into the fire. <laughs> yeah, that would be better. That would be awesome. <laughs> they didn't do it. This movie sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, unfortunately, he is very much alive, but he is not talking. He, he lifts his head up and um, another just great lighting and composition scene when um, the father lifts his head up, um, he, it looks like he's been crying. His eyes are very wet and he just says, you know, I, I, there isn't anything I can tell you. I don't know what you want from me, but I don't know anything. And so they deduce that Mario, who paid him a visit just before, has either <clears throat> threatened him to keep quiet or bribed him to keep quiet. Uh, we're not really sure which is which. Um, you kind of, you kind of think that since Mario is this tough guy who slaughters cattle, you know, with a butcher knife, that it would be likely that he would come and threaten the old man. Um, but Francesco seems to say, or think that they paid him off. So I don't know. Um, we find out later that Mario really isn't the tough guy that we all think he is, um, but we don't know that just yet. So um, we go to the next scene. It is a luncheon because, and the only reason I know that it's a lunch is because at some point somebody says good afternoon to, uh, I think Enrico says afternoon to Bernard, who's sitting there having something to eat. The place is completely empty. No one else is there. The family comes down to have a lunch and Adriana is there too. She looks like a ghost. Uh, and uh, Enrico is kind of clowning around a little bit like, hey, you need to eat a little bit. Look how fast, you know, Mario is eating. And, um, you know, I'm surprised he didn't do Here Comes the Little Airplane. That would have been funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, they exchange glances a couple times, uh, Adriana and um, Bernard. And... She seems to be 
in some sort of a desperate way. You know, Mario puts his hand on her hand in a tender moment. Um, but Bernard continues to stare at her and she notices him and he, he, you know, he furrows his brow at her and she continues to stare at him. And then she looks back down and there's a moment there where it's clear that, you know, she's trying to give him some sort of a signal or some sort of a vibe unspoken. Um, he had, he lifts his head up and she's still staring at him. <clears throat> and uh, let's see, I think at that point Enrico comes over to the table to say something like, it looks like, um, you know, here's your papers. They just arrived and it looks like she's feeling better. She came down for lunch. So that's a good sign. Um, but that she has poor health and it's a shame that <laughs> no one told her. <laughs> it's, it's really a shame that nobody told Mario that she has bad health because he would never have married her, obviously. Um, the next scene, let's see. Bernard goes back to his room. What? Well, I was going to say something. Did you tie this in with the whole poisoning thing that was supposed to have happened to Tilda? Um, no, not really. But I did think later on, I do have down here in my notes. Um, once Bernard comes down with the flu and Irma takes care of him, that it's quite possible that she's poisoning him with whatever medicine she's giving him. But yeah, you're right. It's like, yeah. you know, I was thinking that too. Maybe Irma poisoned Tilda or tried to, um, but ended up, you know, maybe that was the, you know, we don't know this, but maybe that was the plan. It was like, okay, she's pregnant. We need to slowly poison her. So she dies and we'll just call it a suicide. But then something else happens and she gets stabbed instead in like a, a moment of passion. Um, or it wasn't working fast enough and yeah, right. I lost it. Well, the first time I saw this, I wasn't thinking it was Irma specifically, but because they do plant the seed of, Oh, I mean, a couple of seeds at the beginning. Enrico needs money. Uh, Tilda, part of her suicide, quote unquote, involved poison. Right. And then, oh, Mario just married this rich woman from out of town. And Tilda was pregnant, supposedly or possibly. Right. At that point, I thought, oh, this movie's a breeze. I already got this whole thing figured out. Yeah, yeah, and then he's, you know, uh, he starts getting sick and then she starts getting sick. And I'm like, oh, dude, I know what the rest of this is already. You can't fool me. <laughs> so but, so your idea was um, that Tilda was poison. I'm sorry. Irma was poisoning Tilda to... Um, get rid of her because of the pregnancy. Now she's poisoning well, Adriana. Somebody was. Somebody was. I didn't know it was her specifically. And somebody was poisoning. I thought they were using her as uh, a hobby horse, so to say. And oops, she got pregnant. And we need to get rid of her because uh, it would look bad. Or she might blab if we don't. You know, she might try to extort us, which, I don't know. But we need to get rid of her, and because we have financial... Or maybe they'd set up the marriage to kind of uh, 
marry Adriana to get money. Right. And it's inconvenient that, oh, the housekeeper or the room cleaner, whatever you call her, at the hotel just got knocked up. And we can't say it's the father's. We can't say it's Enrico's because that would look kind of creepy. And we sure as hell can't say it was Mario's because he's supposed to be marrying this rich girl. Right. But the point is, the first time I saw this, we get to this point in the movie, and I'm thinking I already have everything figured out. There's, And it's not really that. Well, I mean, it's kind of that, but there's a lot more to it. Which was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me. Absolutely. Yep. I agree. But yeah, there there is definitely kind of a, a path that they that they try to suggest and walk you walk you down, which is that you know there is some you know something going on with possibly poisoning being involved because it's been it's been mentioned before, and then of course you know the next thing we know is that. Uh, in a couple scenes later, Bernard comes down with some sort of, um, some sort of thing where Irma has to take care of him. And is he getting worse because he's being poisoned or did he really, you know, does he really have the flu? So, um, he goes back up to his room and he looks out the window and he sees Adriana again. And, uh, she motions to him and she leaves the window. She's like, wait a second. And she leaves the window and she comes back with something written on a piece of paper or you don't see her writing anything, but it, she has a piece of paper and she, she says here, I, you know, she, mo- she motions here. I'm going to give this to you. And she throws it out the window. Um, and then she closes the window and goes away. So, Assuming that Bernard goes out immediately after seeing this to go and retrieve this note, the problem is that he can't find it. And there's a a shot um, where the camera is uh, situated in like what looks between two doors, the two doors of the uh, warehouse looking out. And it, it's pretty obvious that the way they framed it, that someone is looking at Bernard in that perspective. Mm-hmm. And then they switch the camera back to see that Mario is is in the warehouse looking out. And so it's possible that Bernard, um, that Mario saw what Adriana did and he ran out and grabbed the note before Bernard could get it. Um, but needless to say, Bernard doesn't find it. So... Uh, in the next scene, we see that Bernard is out at night by the lake and his voiceover says, you know, I didn't get the note. So basically I came out here to meet up with her and ask her about it. And, um, it was very cold and windy. Um, I was starting to get a fever and eventually, um, she sees him or he sees her, I'm sorry. And someone else is there too, hiding behind a tree. He sees a figure, two people. He sees a figure standing by the lake. You don't see who it is. 
Uh, he calls out to her. She walks away, but there is a cut of two other people that you've never seen before that are, are just probably out for a walk that are also there to witness this. And yeah, I think there were just a couple who were taking a walk and probably going to make out or something by the lake. Right. But um, their presence will be brought up again in, in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> so <laughs> Bernard leaves the lake. He, she doesn't respond. He goes back to his room. Um, it's dark in the room. He turns the light on. He goes over to the window. He looks out the window and it really looks like it's daytime. Um, and I know I've been harping on this the whole time we've been talking about it, but <laughs> it's just driving me crazy um, as to whether or not they intended for this to be confusing or it's just the way that they lit the shots and they wanted to light the shots a certain way. Uh, anyway, he looks out at the lake. He doesn't see anything. He doesn't see anyone. Um, turns around and um, he turns his light off. He goes to bed. I, or no, he sees, you know, he looks out the window and he sees the light turn off in uh, Adriana's room. Uh, so then he pours a little bit more whiskey and he says, I felt sick when he wakes up, there's a doctor there and the doctor is checking him out and says, you know, um, you have a case of the flu, no big deal, but you need to stay in bed for a few days and let Irma take care of you. Here's the prescription. Um, and Irma comes and uh, delivers his medicine. But there's a cut. It's like a little bit of a montage of cuts where he's doing a where he's doing a voiceover and he says he lost all track of time. And they do a shot of a very rough waters on the lake. And um, Irma's looking out the window. It looks like it's raining. Um She's making his medicine cocktail. She brings him the glass. Um, But then the last shot is her looking at him kind of distraught and shutting the door. The next scene, he's got this, he's growing a beard. So it's been a few days, obviously. He's woken up by a police detective who says, "Um, I need you to come with me. I'll wait for you out in the hallway. He says, I'm really sick. And he says, look, I need you to come. He says, don't you, can't you tell me what this is about? And he says, no, uh, I can't. And the regulations. So uh, they walk through the square uh, to the police station and the police officer or the detective or the inspector, whoever it is, leads him to a uh, slab with a white sheet over it. He pulls the sheet back and uh, Bernard realizes that it is Adriana. She's dead. And the inspector says that she was pulled out of the lake and they go to the office to take the statement. Actually, it's a different, is it a different person? Yeah. The guy who brings him to look at the body is different than the person that asks him the questions. I guess one one is a, a detective and one is an inspector, some different kind of ranking within the police department. Um, I saw somebody listed in the credits as the coroner. Oh, maybe he's the coroner. But the police guy is the one with the glasses that shows up when he's in bed. 
And then they go, they look at the body, and then there's this other guy. But it seems strange to me that the coroner would be asking him all those questions. Yeah. For the deposition or affidavit or whatever the hell you call it. Agreed. And there's somebody in the background who's taking, you know, typing up what sounds to be like whatever it is that he's saying about his statement. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they pulled Adriana out of the lake. Um, he says that he thought it was strange um, that she would be out walking late at night all by herself. And the, uh, the inspector or whoever he is said, um, well, maybe she was sleepwalking. Did you ever think of that? And he says, no, I didn't think of that, but it could be. Um, and then he says, okay, well, thank you. I appreciate the statement. And he says, well, you know where to find me if you need more answers. Um, but basically, you know, she, her behavior has always been strange since I, since I met her. Um, before he leaves, he goes back and looks at the body one more time, or he looks at the, the covered body. Um, and at this point, you know, he's basically saying, um, I, I really want to be out of this. I really don't want to be part of this anymore. Um, but, you know, I have a very strong feeling that something isn't finished yet and that there's something going on with this family that um, is kind of like tragic and sinister and, and weird all at the same time. So um, I guess that's just him basically telling himself, yeah, I'm going to stick around and try to figure this out a little bit more instead of leaving. Cause I mean, like, that's the other thing about this movie, you know, at any point he could decide, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm going to leave. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the person that I came here for is dead. Um, all this other weird shit has happened and it's time for me to leave, but he stays. Um, and it's partly because he's trying to subconsciously reconcile, uh, what he remembers with what, really happened and try to, you know, make sense of the memories that he has and some of the, some of the things that are inconsistent about what he remembers. So he goes back to the house and they just happen to be in the middle of the funeral procession for Adriana, uh, in the middle of a rainstorm in, with horse and buggy, which is really kind of depressing it's really a depressing looking scene. And um, Bernard decides that he's going to take this opportunity to go do a little spying. So he goes to what I think is uh, Mario and Adriana's bedroom and snoops mm -hmm. around a little bit. First of all, he sees the white jacket and um, it's important um to note, I don't, I think he does this as part of the voiceover. I can't remember, but the idea here is like, here's the coat. Um, why is it here? Because if Adriana is always out walking at night, she's always wearing that coat and she was found in the lake because she was out walking at night. So why is it here and not at the police station? So that's where the, sus yeah. the suspicions start to come in. Um, 
And he starts going through uh, the drawer, the desk drawer. He finds some pictures. Um, and Enrico kind of has a little bit of a, of a breakdown uh, or a fainting spell or something that basically makes him decide that it's time for him to go back to the house. And he's not going to be part of the funeral procession anymore. Um, and as he's walking back to the house, they cut back to Bernard. He pulls out a piece of paper and I think it's the piece of paper that he was looking for that Adriana threw out the window. And it doesn't, mm-hmm. there's no subtitles in my version that says what it says. Although it says something like assolutamente, which means absolutely, I guess, right? Um, yeah. And something else, which I don't. Ness. Okay, the first one says necessario. Eh. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely necessary that and then he unfurls the next one and it said absolutely. So, it's like a the middle piece has been lost. Right. Right, exactly. But instead of digging back in the trash looking for the missing piece or any other piece, he says, "Oh, hmm, that's funny." Part of us missing. Oh, look at these pictures. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then he... You already know what she looked like. Find the message. But Ugh. but then there's this weird scene where he looks up from the photos of Adriana and he... It's clear on his face that he's noticing something. And either they don't show you what it is or it's just that he hears Enrico coming back. And I'm not sure... Which one? Because they never really tell you. He just opens the door and looks out, and he sees that. Yeah, Enrico's I would expect home. him to be. Uh, if he heard in, if he heard anybody walking down that stair or that hallway, he would have. Yeah. Well, he's at the other end of the hall, so I don't know what that was. All right, so now it must have been he just heard somebody coming. Yeah, well, that's what I think it could be. But the look on his face was like he discovered something on the wall there. Now, I think right here is where, you know, you follow his footsteps. He's walking slowly. Uh, no, this isn't this. This isn't the scene I was talking about. I think we'll see it again later. He... He uh, he goes into this like linens closet washroom again, and he follows, I guess, Enrico's noises, and he hears uh, him saying Tilda, Tilda, and I guess this is the same place where he was spying through before, where they were, you know, having sex in the bed. But now, instead of them having, yeah, I think it is, yeah, because it looks like it's the same crack in the door. In the same windows and shelves with blankets and sheets on them. Yeah. But um, at this time, Enrico is kind of crying on the bed and he's saying, Tilda, Tilda, why? Uh, Does he say you ruined everything? Is that what it? No. It's your fault. It's your fault. That's what it is. So it's. Okay. So it's after this moment. What the hell is that in the, is there, I'm looking at something in, in the video 
All right. I may edit this out, but. Okay. Is it after he sees Enrico sitting on the bed crying? It's after the, he sees Enrico sitting on the bed crying. He leaves. His face is com- his his face is dry. And he starts walking down the hallway. He turns the corner to the left. There's that he's covered in sweat. There's that mirror that I was saying about, which was in the other memory. <clears throat> right. He's covered in sweat. He's getting more and more sweaty because I guess the fever is still part of what's going on with him. Why did uh, he leave the funeral? Now, right here, he puts his head down and there's this weird, like, stuff coming off the frame. I don't know if it's coming. It's not supposed to be coming off his head. Do you see that? Or is it just me? It's like, it looks like, it looks like it's coming off. It looks like it's raining in the room. Yeah, maybe it's just my copy of the film. Okay, what what's he saying at the part you're talking about? Because I see him walking and sweating. Now he leans against the wall. Right. He has his. He says, "Why had he in desperation yeah, you, gone see to Tildy's room?" Do you see that little weird visual thing that's happening? Right. I mean, it, if you didn't, if you're not seeing it, then it's clearly not there. I mean, uh, unless oh. I'm took acid and didn't realize it. It's just this weird visual disturbance in the frame <clears throat> and i still see. what dark truth linked the two deaths and then it kind of zooms in an idea plagued me yeah that that whole and time then it just kind of blurs out Yeah, that whole time there's something visually that's that's dropping in front of his face in front of his nose that almost looks like there's water dripping from the ceiling or there's rain but if you're not noticing it then it must be my copy so, cause we go, we blur out and he says, perhaps, you know, Tilda was not how I imagined her. We have another yeah. scene of what we think, um, Bernard is remembering, uh, and it's, uh, Tilda in bed with Enrico and he says, oh, you're pregnant. And, um, now she's in a different position altogether. You can, you can see that she's obviously, you know, um, a dominating force instead of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, she's the aggressor here instead of the victim. Now, one of you are going to mm-hmm. have to marry me. Um, I'm going to stay here, decide who it is. I'm going to be the lady of the house. Um, I can ruin you both and you know it. Go ahead and call me a horror if you want to, but it doesn't matter because I, ha 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 ha. And, um, now again, you know, we have to go back and ask the questions of, did Bernard have these three different visions or memories of Tilda with somebody peering through or spying through that crack? three different times or was it the same vision? But as he continues to go over it and over it, it changes and you know, reality becomes more uh, a part of his memory as opposed to the very first time. Um, 
why did they have a scene where he and Tilda were kissing and interrupted that whole flow of memory? I mean, it, maybe it was just to just like, like we said before, just to add some, some context to the relationship. But, um, you know, we don't know whether any of these are memories. These may all just be things that he just invented in his head about Tilda based on the things that people have told him about what, what happened. So, um, again, like he's trying to picture it inside his mind, right? Or like create a little mental movie yeah. of what could it have been like if this happened? Yeah. Yeah, because I don't believe it could be a memory because then he would have had to have been at the door at just the right moment to hear the whole unveiling. And if it was a memory, it's it's like um, Francesco says in the boat, she's not what you think she is or she's not as you see her. Right. Like there's more to her than you see or something like that. Exactly. Uh, I don't see how you could peek through a crack in the door and see her basically hi yes i'm pregnant now i'm going to be the lady of the house and fuck you and your son you use me and now kiss my ass i'm going to destroy you or whatever and not see that <laughs> and still have this oh i'm going to dump claudia and go to the lake and run off with tilda right so right that doesn't make yeah, the only that's got to be imagination the only way that that makes sense is if if you want to, if you make the assumption that this really was a memory that he witnessed, um, the first time he recalls the memory, it's so distorted because of the way that he feels about Tilda that he's completely rearranged the memory to something else. And between the fact that he's having some of these visions while he's sleeping and that they could also be, you know, considered to be some sort of hallucinations or dreams um, that makes it even more kind of ambiguous. And then the second time he goes back to the memory, he remembers it differently. And now this time, instead of it being this um, completely unidentified stranger that she's with, it's the ambiguity of, is it Mario or is it Enrico? And the third time he goes back to relive the memory in his mind he gets the truth, which is, it was Enrico the whole time, at least in the memory. Mario's not really there. And she's blackmailing him because of the pregnancy. But again, it's very possible that instead of it being a memory, it's just the clues that he's been kind of piecing together based on what he's found out and what um, Francesco told him, that he just invented this this vision, this memory, he created the story in his head. So, uh, and that basically assumes that all of this is correct. You know, it, we, we're, right. we're supposed to, we're supposed to believe now that this is really what happened, but it may not be. So, um, I would say it could be 50% of any of that <laughs> plus 50% of the filmmakers trying to get the story across. Right. And, <laughs> And that's three and that's 150%. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you need. And that's what makes it arty. Exactly. Right? 
when you have more possibilities than the film can contain mathematically right and yeah <laughs> um Okay, so the next scene has a really awesome visual effect camera technique that I enjoyed watching over and over again. Bernard goes to the phone and calls Francesco. Francesco says, are you okay? And Bernard says, yeah, um, I've got some more information. I really wanted to talk to you. Um, But Francesco says, I'm really not interested in this anymore. Um... I have a lot of work to do. I don't think I can get away. Um, <laughs> I've discovered some new things and some new clues. And Francesco says, do you have real proof? And he says, no, I don't really have real proof, but I must see you. And Francesco says, you know, you probably need to, you know, stop this. I don't want to be mixed up in this any longer. Um, it's such an ugly affair. Um, I have to continue living in this town um, you're going to leave and write about this stuff and make money, but you know, I've made too many mix- mistakes already. Um, and I have to go. So we're supposed to probably assume that someone got to, uh, Francesco cause he's really changed his tune about this whole thing and either paid him off or threatened him or both. But the thing that I really enjoyed about this, and again, I had to watch this a couple of times because on the one hand, I'm watching it and, and reading the subtitles to figure out what the hell's going on and what are they talking about. Once I knew that, I go back and watch it again and, and watch this camera movement that starts um, with Bernard on the left side of the frame and slowly starts to turn around his head behind him. And eventually... While he's talking to Francesco, it ends on the other side of him. And again, it's really slow. And I have the sound turned down, so I don't remember. There's no music here. It's just, it's just the, yeah, it's just the two of them talking. Um, and now we arrive with the camera that it stopped turning. It faces him where he's now on the right, you know, right edge of the frame instead of the left edge of the frame. Then we pan backwards or, or walk, you know, walk backwards with the camera and the music starts and Mario comes in from the left in the foreground. And it was just, you know, I just really, really liked how they did that. It was really tense, really suspenseful. Um, You knew something was going to happen. And just, you know, the whole composition of that scene where, you know, Bernard is starting to really realize that no one is going to help him and, and, uh, he's in over his head and, um, you know, and all suspicions point to Mario and now there's Mario. Um, and when they cut to Mario, he doesn't look menacing at all. He's just there with his kind of doggy eyes and his little skin. Yeah. He's just kind of smiley. Yeah. And he's like, is there anything I can help you with? And you really shouldn't go out because it's raining, you know? And, uh, but it looks like he's been out because he's wearing a tie and a leather jacket. So he just got back from somewhere oh, and funeral. it wasn't the, the, the slaughterhouse. Was it the funeral? Is this still the same? Was it? Jeez. Is this the same know. day? Uh, the same moment? I don't know. I forgot already. Well, because 
you know, he leaves the room where Enrico is crying and then he has that vision or that memory about Tilda being the blackmailer and then he gets on the phone. So I think it's the same day and Mario just got back from the funeral. He looks pretty cheerful for having just buried his wife. So, yeah, he. Yeah, just like he wasn't so excited to come home with his new wife <laughs> when she was alive, he doesn't look so distraught coming back from her funeral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so Bernard strange. says, you know, I've got to go out to see a friend who developed the photos for me. I've got to get some. And um, Mario uh, says, look, I need to speak to you. Please don't go. And then all of a sudden he gets interrupted by Irma. Turns on the light Mm -hmm. and she asks him how he's feeling and he says, I'm doing better. And, you know, this whole time, uh, Bernard really doesn't have much of a suspicion or at least not outwardly of Irma. He kind of regards her as an innocent person here. Um, but before he leaves, she says, look, um, I really feel like my father is, health is deteriorating. Um, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but um, because of this new problem, you know, that our the tragedy that our family has suffered, I sent the staff home and I'm going to take my father away from this because um, he's going to die here if I don't take him away. And would you please pack up and leave? Um, and he says, yeah, sure. No problem. Um, she says, We're going to close the hotel for a few months or several months or something like that. So uh, she looks again, very distraught. And before we see where Bernard goes, she kind of walks around the lobby of the hotel and looks in, in weird directions and makes these weird faces. And you don't really know what she's up to just yet. But then we cut to Bernard running to uh, see Francesco. And, or no, I guess he walks to see Francesco, but, um, Francesco isn't there. And I guess he must've decided, Hey, Francesco is gonna leave town. So I better run to the train station. Cause I guess that's the only way Francesco could leave town because he doesn't have a car. So he runs to the train station and when he gets there, he, you don't see this as the viewer, but it's clear that um, Bernard spots him in the train in one of the windows and says, oh my God, Francesco, but the train leaves um, and takes off. And uh, Bernard is left standing there uh, in what looks like a sunset shot um, with a lot of light, um, kind of distraught and now trying to figure out what to do. Um I think it's kind of a leap to think that just because Francesco's not opening the door when you bang on it, that I should go look for him at the train station. Right. It is a leap. He could have been taking a dump. He could have been asleep. He could have been uh, enjoying one of his single hunchback guy slideshows in the dark room. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. Or something. Who knows? You don't know. know? But yeah. But it's not like he gave it. Because as a viewer, the first time I'm thinking, why would he just automatically assume, well, let me run to the train station? 
Yeah, but, it was a little far-fetched. I think they just needed to add a little bit more kind of urgency and suspense to the story because we're getting towards the end here. And, right. you know, Bernard's one last, you know, friend who's kind of supporting his thesis of what happened to Tilda is it, it told him, hey, you know, leave this alone. Um, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And so he, you know, he, he pursues him and goes to talk to him. And when he doesn't answer the phone, he says, oh, well, he's obviously leaving town because he's, he's fearful. So, and everybody's kind of getting out of town. All the, all the staff is leaving and the hotel's closing. <clears throat> I was kind of expecting that scene from uh, the house with laughing windows where right when he gets there, the, the dummy comes flying out the window. And remember that? I don't exactly remember that, no. Okay. Is it um, towards the end of the film? No, it's probably kind of in the middle. There's that friend of his that's trying to tell him, oh, there's this weird stuff going in town, going on in town that you don't know about and it has to do with this and that. And it's one of those situations where, um, come talk to me and I'll tell you everything instead of me just telling yeah, you yeah, everything yeah. over the phone. Right. <laughs> And like right as he gets to the guy's apartment, you see this dummy fly out the window, and it's supposed to be him, right? But I mean, it's it's a mannequin or a dummy or something. Oh, okay, but it's not a dummy in the story. It's just a dummy because of the bad effects. Yeah, it's a dummy because of the budget. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> but but his friend comes flying out the window and splats on the sidewalk right in front of him. Got it. I was kind of expecting one of those. But instead, oh, let's run to the train station. Yeah, because again, okay. like all of these kind of um, all of these uh, tropes that we've come to know from the films that came after 1970, they, they really kind of haven't mm -hmm. exactly been invented yet. And I feel like this movie uh, is more like Les Diaboliques than it is the classic Jalos that came after it. Um, even though, you know, Lady Diabolique is a lot older of a film. This this film is more very kind of restrained and and conservative in some of the uh, of the plot. If there's any plot twists at all, um, in yeah. the way that it handles them. So, um, but when we get to the end, we can talk about that. So um, Bernard gets back to his room. He's had enough. He he's he's got a pack up his uh his bag and he takes out a couple of pictures of, of tilda that he that he got out when he first got there and he rips them up he's had enough he goes over and uh, his final bill has been left for him by the uh, nightside table or the nightstand or whatever bedside table and he opens the envelope and there's his bill but it also there is a note from mario that says um I need to speak with you before I, before you go, I'll wait for you at 11 o'clock in the warehouse. Um, I need to speak with you urgently. So Bernard looks at his watch and it says 10 and they're going to meet at 11. So he has an hour before he's going to meet him. And Bernard looks out the window again uh, at a very brightly lit warehouse um, a little bit of voiceover, you know, why did he want to talk to me? I don't know why a thousand thoughts. Like, again, this is, 
It's totally a daytime shot um, of the warehouse. But the next scene, we see Bernard. It's very dark. He's walking into what looks like the warehouse. You can see some meat hanging uh, and swinging back and forth. And, you know, it's clear that that's where he is. He walks a little bit further into the light and sees Mario standing there. And um, Mario, um, he says, uh, let's see. He looks very, very sad and worried. He looks at the floor. Uh, He looks at Bernard and he says, you know, you didn't want to listen to me earlier when I asked you to stay. Um, I would have told you everything and perhaps you could have helped me. And then he goes on to talk about how um, Enrico, his father, came and told him that he needed to marry Tilda, um, but he refused Um, Because he knew that once they were married, that he would still have to share her with his father. And um, I don't know why that would be, but that was the way it was. And they, I guess neither of them knew who the father of the child was either. Um, So he decided to kill her instead. And so he, as he's telling this story, they flash to a scene where you know, and and I think we saw a little clip of this before the the bloody kind of scarred hand, you know, trailing up the staircase. Um, but this time we see uh, Tilda. She sits up. She screams. There's a, a a zoom, a crash zoom on this gleaming razor blade. It's Mario. Uh, she screams, and then the next thing is we see the uh, slit throat of Tilda. Then we come back and Mario says, um, I didn't want to kill her and I didn't want to kill my wife either. But one night I was, um, I wanted to confess and in my moment of grief, I felt I needed to confide in her. And then they cut to another scene where Uh, Adriana is kind of surprised awake out of her bed um, within it's probably only a second long and she screams and then um, something covers her face or uh, something similar to that. A hand covers her face. Then we go back again to Mario and he said, I wanted to confess everything I tried with you. Um, And he says, I didn't want her death. And then he says, it was her. Um, And this is the really weirdest part of the, of this film. He says, I didn't want her death. And then he says, it was her. It was, and then you see a knife, like a kitchen knife. And you see a Mm -hmm. a figure moving towards the frame in shadow. And then. Supposedly towards. Uh, Adriana, right? Because we already have, yes, because she was the last one that we saw. Right. But Adriana didn't show any signs of any sort of 
blunt trauma or anything, you know, when, when he looked at the body, when, uh, when he went to the police station, they didn't say anything about her being stabbed and, um, she didn't show any signs of being stabbed and at least from the neck up. And then the very last thing we see before Bernard wakes up from whatever it is he's doing is a bloody hand against a window. Okay, but then it smash cuts to him sitting on his bed. So did that whole meeting in the slaughterhouse with Mario happen at all? No, I don't think so. I don't think. Okay, because then again, for the millionth time, he runs through the windows, <laughs> looks out at the warehouse, then turns and looks and out at the lake. Sees, yeah. Oh, there's some woman in a white coat at the lake. Now, who could it possibly be? Because the other two women are gone. And then we have this hmm. great shot of the spiral staircase and him running down it. And it, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're we need to assume that there's a suggestion there that you know. Things are crazy in his own mind. We just saw this whole uh-huh. scene where Mario confessed to everything. But if you follow the sequence of events, we see he checks his watch. It's an hour before he's supposed to meet him. He sits back down. Then he's at the <laughs> uh, he's then he's at the warehouse. Mario confesses to everything, but within. The confession fantasy, if this is a conf- if this is a fantasy, there are two flashbacks or maybe even three, because I really think that that last thing that we see before it smash cuts to him sitting on the bed sweating is a different uh-huh. scene than the scene, the second flashback, which is Adriana. I think that the last scene we see is Irma coming at him with the knife in Oh. In what really happened at the end. Oh, okay. But that was, you know, that was just my f- interpretation after the last time I watched this. So anyway, just to finish this up, he, he sees somebody at the lake. Uh, he runs to her and he turns her around and it's Irma and she's got blood on her face and she's clearly hysterical Um, he still at this point doesn't think that she had anything to do with anything, but Irma says, um, it was me. Um, our family, uh, our family name was dirty. Um, what does he say? The white coat, the white coat that afternoon with her coat on, you were following me, not her. What afternoon? Didn't she only walk at night? Um... The white coat. That afternoon with her coat on, you were following me, not her. She wanted to talk, but she won't now. My brother had to kill her. So Irma is basically saying that Mario killed Adriana. And in her hysterics, Bernard cannot calm her down. She runs away from him. And she says, it's all over. I have to die now. Our name has been spared. And everyone's dead. But at least our name has been spared. (laughs) The whole fucking family is gone. But at least, you know, they don't have a bad reputation. Yeah. Uh, So Bernard can't even understand what the hell is going on. He looks at his hands. 
There's blood on them because I guess he must have got some from trying to calm Irma down. He runs back down the lake uh, and back to the warehouse in kind of a frantic mode. He looks around. He, he, he sees there's a light coming from the door of the warehouse. Uh, he opens the door and uh, we see Enrico on the floor dead. And then we see a smash zoom of or crash zoom of Mario against the wall, also dead and bleeding. We don't know if they were shot, if they were stabbed. We don't know who killed who. Um, it's probably it's probably likely that Irma killed them because she went crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, the next scene, immediately after we see these two murders and these two dead people, is this wide, super, super fisheye lens uh, shot of the town square with a bunch of people gathered around. They're obviously, they obviously know what has happened. They're, they're talking, they're gossiping. And we don't see that for too long before we cut to the same police inspector person. Um, and Bernard is back in his office and they're sitting at the desk. And he says, you know, please sign, you know, this witness statement for me. And in so many words, uh, he's the, the, uh, the inspector basically says, look, this is just a formality because there's not going to be a trial. Um, since everyone is either dead or presumed dead because they're still looking for Irma's body in the lake. Um, but one of the things that I thought was weird is he says, um, Irma is, he says, um, we're not going to find her alive and perhaps not dead either. I don't know what that is supposed to mean. Um, is she going to be a zombie? You know, what is that? What, what is he, what are they saying? Um, well, I think he's saying if we find her, she's going to be dead, but we might not even find her at all. Oh, I, okay. That makes sense. That That's probably lost between the, the audio and the, the subtitles. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, thank you for your statement because um, where Irma fell, you know, the lake is very deep. They're not going to find her. There's thick vegetation at the bottom. Um the only thing we found was her coat. Uh, so again, the coat is back in uh, the information that we'll be given and, and focusing on. Um, so with no trial, we are going to arrive at <clears throat> a purely hypothetical conclusion thanks to your intuition. So basically, it seems as if Bernard has decided to tell the cops everything that he knows except for the fact that he doesn't have, again, have any proof of what really happened. Um, Irma, Irma said that she did it, but he didn't see her do it. Um, he doesn't know what happened to Tilda. He doesn't know what happened to Adriana. And he finds the bodies of Enrico and Mario, but he doesn't know how they got there. So he writes a hypothetical conclusion to the events and gives it to the police and the police say, well, since we're not really going to have to prove any of this in a court of law, since everyone's dead, we're going to accept this as what really happened. And that will satisfy the townspeople and it will satisfy the newspapers. 
yeah. that's the end of the story. And, uh, and that's it. So the guy basically says, uh, you know, um, I know you want to leave. Um, and Bernard, um, the next scene, it's Bernard's point of view, uh, in the car, <clears throat> it's the same. Then, and then they cut to him in the car and it's the same shot as, you know, what he, what it looked like when he arrived at the town at this time, he drives out to the town square before he leaves. There's a whole bunch of people standing by the edge of the lake. And we see the divers or a diver jumping off the boat uh, to go see if they can find Irma's body. And in the voiceover, he says something to the effect of, um, you know, like one of the reasons why he came back to the hotel was because, or at least what he told his girlfriend was that he's feeling lost. Um, and when he first arrived at the town thinking that Tilda was still alive, he started to feel better. And now he feels just as bad as before, if not worse. And, um, that's it. Uh, Bernard turns onto the last scene and it's like this really, um, incredible shot of these white petrified looking dead trees, uh, that kind of flank both sides of the road and the car drives off and turns to the right and out of the scene. And that's the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. So, um, in talking through this ending just now and going over it, you know, very meticulously, uh, one line and one scene at a time, it's clear that there was never going to be a conclusion that was going to be, um, definitive about what happened. And Bernard has, you know, it, it, it's clear that he's kind of pissed off about the fact that he kind of thinks he figured it all out, but it doesn't matter. The police don't care. They're not going to pursue it. Um, but it also reinforces the fact that he may not really be right. And he may not know what really happened and, how much of this that we experienced as a viewer and how much that, that he experienced as a character is an illusion, a fantasy, a hallucination. It's all very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. I think part of the ambiguity towards the end is right when he, she starts talking to him before she runs off and jumps in the lake, yeah. I guess. The first thing she says is nobody will ever betray me again or they won't betray me again. Let me see exactly what she says. Okay. He touches her shoulder. She turns around. Okay. Give it a second to sink in. That is Irma. What's wrong? What's happened? No one will betray me again. Right? Yes. Okay. What kind of betrayal could be involved in her? Uh, her brother and dad banging the the help, right? 
Then, as she breaks free and runs away, uh, okay, that afternoon I had her cut off. She wanted to talk, but she won't now. My brother had to kill her. She bites his hand. She runs off. She's, the subtitle says, let me go. I love them. Yeah. Okay, she's talking about her brother and or dad. And what I was saying earlier, how when Enrico was like, she was like a daughter to us. I think there's a lot of incest subtext Hmm, going on in this whole thing. And there's a book I have called Giallo and Thrilling Italian Style. It's kind of like the the Howarth type books. Okay. It's a little more analytical and it's not like a... uh, like an encyclopedia where you look up each movie, but it has different themes and different chapters. Yes. And uh, it says that Bernard ends up discovering a series of murders and disturbing family secrets. Okay. Which kind of pointed me in this direction because I was thinking that she was just upset about the family name and dishonor and... Uh, like we said earlier, one of the alternative titles for this in America was, uh, I don't know, Love Something Something and Dishonor. Right. Uh, but reading that one line in this Italian book about disturbing family secrets made me see that end in a kind of from a different angle. Yeah, right. And the way that she gets so upset because her brother's about to come home with from his honeymoon with his new wife. And then she gets so upset again when they do come back. Yeah. Because like that scene where um, Bernard is sending the fish back because he's not hungry. They cut to her and she looks all distraught. Yeah. Then later, Mario and Adriana come back and they cut to her and she's all distraught. Right. And the way she starts off the the scene at the end with nobody will ever betray me again. Betray you. I mean, I can see how you'd be upset and worried about your family reputation if your dad and brother are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing and has created a scandal. And oh, now we knocked her up and she committed suicide. But how is that a betrayal to yeah, you? Right. Unless. Unless you're involved, too. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously when they talk about family secrets, the mm-hmm. clear answer is that the father and the son had the same lover <clears throat> who got pregnant and they don't know who's who was the father. You know, that's a big family secret. But yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I I really it's it's really hard to to come to a good conclusion about what Irma was up to and how much responsibility she has in what happened. Um, maybe she slit Tilda's throat and killed um, Adriana. Maybe she didn't, you know, because the I still believe that the scene where Bernard goes to talk to Mario in the warehouse is another dream, but it may not be. It may Mm -hmm. be that that was real. 
and that after that scene happened, he just walked back to his room and sat there for a little while thinking about it and then went to the window. Well, we see the scene where where Irma is uh, preparing his medicine at the window, putting the little drops in his glass of water. Yeah. And then he passes out. And who knows how long I've slept? How many days has it been? He wakes up and boom, Adriana's dead. Oh, by the way, we fished somebody out of the lake and now uh, you got to come talk to us at the police station. Yeah. I think that wasn't an accident. So she's at least in, in plus, you know, they planted that seed about the poison and. Um, you think it wasn't an accident I'm pretty, that he was out of it for a while? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, just to keep him out of the way until we can take care of Adriana. And I think she was being drugged, too, the whole time. I don't think she's just, oh, gee, she should have told us she was sickly. We wouldn't have married her. Well, what do you <clears throat> no. <clears throat> what do you think Adriana wanted to tell Bernard? With uh, that note. I don't know. Maybe he did confess, and she was like, holy shit, I married a murderer. Get me out of here. But... Or maybe she started suspecting that she was being drugged. Yeah, or... I mean, well, I mean, let's go down this road. Let's say Mario killed Tilda. But then he went to confess to his wife, but didn't kill his wife. <clears throat> but she, um, when she found out, she you know, when he confessed to her, she wasn't happy about it. It wasn't like, oh, that's okay, honey. You know, we're married. Um, and right. instead, she became very uh, distraught about it and didn't know what to do and wanted to to tell Bernard about it because he's kind of an outsider. And um, maybe it was Irma who found the note and ended up going back and killing Tilda. Um, I mean, uh, 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 Adriana. And... Then it's kind of like, you know, that whole deal where, you know, um, too much blood has been shed. Um, we're all going to have to die now because there's really no way that we can go on living. So I'm going to kill you, dad, and I'm going to kill you, brother, and then I'm going to go throw myself in the lake. Um, maybe that's what happened, I, you know. But, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely plausible that there's more to it and that Irma had um, some additional feelings for at least one or if not both of her family members that was, you know, a little bit incestuous. I mean, that, that could be. Yeah. I think maybe, I mean, if I had to try to, line it all up in my mind I would imagine that Mario had started sleeping with Tilda and then uh, Enrico decided to kind of piggyback in on it so to speak yeah. and that little speech or that little uh, dialogue at the beginning where he's saying well you know I would have liked to remarried but uh you know that chapter's closed that would have been him trying to deflect any kind of uh suspicion yeah. about anything like that even being possible right you know 
Yep, that's right. All right. Did you listen to the the commentary with Tim Lucas? I started to, um, but yeah. I had already watched it all the way through, and I just I couldn't go through it a second time in one sitting. So, yeah. uh, but I will back, go back and, and listen to it because I think he's got a lot of good stuff to add to it. Um, so now a couple of things. I know that we've been talking about this for quite a long time, but I wanted to. Um, do one or two more things about this film before we put it to bed. Uh, as okay. far as the Jalo score is concerned, I actually did score this one a while back. Um, so let me bring it up real quick. Uh, let's see here. The Possessed scored a 73 on the Jalo score. 73? Yeah, for a 1965 film. Um, it got 50 out of 60 points in the main staples category, an Italian director, a hidden identity, an amateur detective motivation of the, um, motivation of the killer psychological. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I could go back and change this. I mean, the motivation of the killer, uh, could be blackmail, but it looks to me more like, you know, if it's Tilda and Tilda did all the stuff, she's kind of crazy, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's more about that. But it, it could go down five points if it needs to. Um, the main killer uh, has an accidental death at the end. She avoids capture. The director is has done more than one. We have at least three body count. We have a flashback revelation. Oh, do we ever? Um, an, an Italian location, a mistaken identity. And when I say mistaken identity, what I think is that for just a split second, we think that it's Mario, but it's not, a, it's not just Mario. There's more than one killer or an accomplice. There's at least three suspects. Um, is that true? Tilda, Enrico, Mario. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's only just the signatures that it didn't get very many scores on. So there was a funeral. Uh, I gave it a score for Peeping Tom. Um, and I gave it a score for Spiral Staircase. So um, this one was a surprising high score uh, on the Jalo score um, compared to, you know, if you take another movie three or four years later before bird comes out and score it. And it gets like a 45 or a 50, depending on which one it is. Um, like deadly inheritance, which I would consider more of a Jalo, only got a 60. So that is uh, as much as I have on the film. I liked it. It's not naked. You die for sure. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good movie. I think if you said, to me, Chris, you have to choose between watching Lady Abelique or watching The Possessed. I'd probably pick The Possessed. I'm not exactly sure why. I just feel more comfortable with The Possessed. But for sure, it is a tedious film. It is a slow burn. If there ever was a definition of a slow burn, it's this. Um, and it requires your attention. It's not something that you can put on and haphazardly check your phone or do other things while 
the boring parts are happening and then come back to, you kind of have to watch and pay attention. So, um, that's really the only thing that prevents me from saying that, you know, I would just drop everything and watch this anytime it's on it. It's definitely, I have to be in the right mood for it, but I think it's awesome. I think it was really well done. And it's a, I call, I consider it a very hybrid kind of a movie because it reminds me of avant-garde cinema. It it reminds me of some of the more um, artistic art, you know, Italian films and Italian directors, but it's got its giallo elements. It's got some Gothic horror elements to it. So it's a very unique film. So I like it. I enjoyed it too. I, I was pretty impressed with it. Um, like you said, it is easy to compare it to Lady Abolique, but it is a much more smaller, well, it's a much smaller film, both in cast and, uh, scope. The setting is basically walking by the lake, walking through the, down the sidewalk, and walking around inside the hotel. And the the budget for this must have been minuscule, but I read that the producers lost so much money on it that they had to kind of twist Sergio Corbucci's arm to get him to direct Django. And Django kind of made their money back or saved the production company. Um because this film only made like a hundred million lira, which is nowhere near a hundred million dollars even back then. It's probably uh, maybe I don't know. I, I'd hate to guess because you have to convert the currency to one that we don't even use anymore, and then put it through the time machine too. So, um, but I don't see how a production company could lose its ass on a movie that probably cost ten thousand dollars. You know. There's hardly, I don't know, maybe the lighting was more complicated than I thought, or the, the film stock was more expensive. But I don't see a whole lot. I don't think they shot anything on sets, really. I think all the hotel rooms were actual hotel rooms. Uh, anyway, I'm getting bunny trailed down here. Well, I mean, it's uh, the only thing that I would would wonder about is how much they needed to pay the non actor staff, like all of the people that were involved in making the movie. It looked like it was a pretty, um, sophisticated setup of, you know, film and camera angles and lighting and post-production of, you know, whatever post-production means back in 65. Um, they had what, four different writers on the screenplay. I don't know how much you had to pay them. So yeah, maybe there was a lot of overhead, in, you know, the, the post-production aspects or the pre and post-production aspects of the film and not necessarily, you know, the, the on-location budget and the actors, but. And well, when I say low budget, I don't mean like, I don't mean it's like cheap and schlocky, like so many low budget things are. I just, I mean, how much could it cost to walk around this town in the middle of off tourist season and shoot black and white? But anyway, I was impressed. I would definitely watch it again, uh, especially the English dub, so I can see how different it is. Or 
how much they spelled it out. And I'd probably watch it a third time. Well, not third. By then, it'd be more like fifth or sixth. But I'd watch it another time on top of that to see, uh, well, to listen to the Tim Lucas commentary. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was The Possessed, and we did it to death like we usually do. <laughs> we appreciate everyone who's still with us and listening to this. Uh, that does it for episode 91. For next time, I would like to suggest a film called Death on the Four Poster from 1964. Uh, definitely not as critical and um, requiring a keen eye as this film. Um but it was released in the same year as Blood and Black Lace. So uh, definitely going backwards instead of forwards. And John Barrymore is in the film, believe it or not. Uh, Drew's father. Is that Drew's father or Drew's grandfather? Um, I don't even know. I'm not sure. I want to say grandfather. Yeah, it says here John Barrymore's granddaughter is Drew Barrymore. Okay. Yeah, so that's next time. Once again, just to remind everybody, I'm going to put the list of the last 10 films we covered on the Facebook page. So go in and vote for your favorite one. Send us an email if you'd like to. It's jallochowchow at gmail.com. Go to our Facebook group, which is uh, jallochowchow.com. It's not volume two anymore because we're back to the old numbering system. And my website, thejalloscore.com. And I always plug my good buddy, I hate Matt Wall. I don't hate him, but that's how you get to his website. I hate Matt Wall. Anyway, that's all the plugs that I have. Do you have any plugs, sir? I mean, you usually don't, but... No, I don't. Never hurts to ask. I am unpluggable okay. and unpeggable. <laughs> <laughs> There's a callback. I have to go back and... Yeah, I got to go back and see which episode that was <laughs> when we started talking about... When I, when I learned the definition of pegging for the first time, yeah. I really wish I... Could have my innocence back <laughs> after, after learning about that. Everything changed after I learned about that. Yeah, there's some things you don't need to know. So until next time, everybody, ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. <laughs>